2: Uh, it's Toys on Sunday's show. I'm Andrew Donson. Thank you so much for joining us on this recapping of all the things that happened in the week that was on Tell. We had five wonderful guests. You're going to get them all all day today on this very special edition of Tell twice on Sunday. Enjoy. Hertel <music> show. Okay, let's talk some economy. That means we got to bring in one of these economist people. And this is the one we have on quite a bit. Our buddy Jericho Hill has returned. He works for one of those four-letter, not three-letter, uh, government organizations. Uh, that's because all the other four-letter words were taken, so they go to acronyms. Uh, Jericho much. Hill, how are you, my friend?
3: Uh, just recovering from a cold and feeling pretty good now.
2: I see you got the killer bees on your shirt there. Uh, that w- that would be great if our government actually did budgets, but
3: uh, that it would be. But you know we we haven't done budgets for several decades now and we probably won't do budgets for several decades it's more about uh it's more about your personal budget is what I what i'm advocating
2: you need to update that for the uh, current parlance and back that budget up maybe it would be a good shirt so, that might be
3: a retro shirt but okay
2: <laughs> all right uh we've got once again we have what looks on the surface to be conflicting economic information we're in this really weird thing where we have a growing economy coming out of the pandemic, but all the indicators that we usually use say things are awful, but at the same time, things aren't really awful to people other than gas prices and inflation and things like this. The GDP number did the same thing. Everybody thinks it's terrible and everybody thinks it's no big deal. Is it one, the other, or somewhere in the middle?
3: So look, you have two hands as an economist, so there's always on one hand and on the other. So let me demystify this, this, this GDP. So first off, what happened? Um, GDP shrank by 1.4 percent at an annualized rate. Now again, that's taking the quarter's growth or not growth and tr- putting that out for a whole calendar year, right? Um, and expectations were that it was going to be, you know, um, it was going to grow at a, at a slow rate. So the fact that it was negative, right, it was kind of a big miss. And so everyone's trying to figure out what exactly happened here. So, so look. <clears throat> it's a bad number right the slowing economy the first thing that i want to say about this though is if if you're a non-economist the fact that I one fact i want you to have is quarter one of any year is historically the lowest growth quarter that is without fail i can go back three decades and it's just a pattern that holds up so even you know There's there's probably, you know, reasons why quarter one is always weaker compared to say quarter four typically, right? Part of that might be because of companies in normal years buying up inventory in quarter four for the Christmas shopping season and them not buying inventory in quarter one because they have a bunch of crap they got to get rid of, okay? So we actually see this in the data. Um, We see that inventory um, was not filled up like it had been. Uh, in fact, inventory contributed to um, almost a full percentage point. Um, so you could back it out and basically GDP growth would have been about a negative 0.5 uh, instead of negative 1.4 annualized if we didn't have this inventory thing. Um, so that's the first thing that I want to get out of the way is quarter one's pretty much always bad for the year. Uh, it's almost always driven by inventory. Um, and here again, it's driven by inventory. So that that's that's one thing that i want to say um the the second thing you know that 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 we see is um one of the missing one of the misses was people's consumption we expected it to grow by three and a half percent um it rose by point by 2.7 percent so i think we can sort of now say look i told you that if we if we actually had the inventory thing sort out we'd be at negative 0.5 and then if Consumption rose the way we thought it was going to. We would have been positive 0.2 or 0.3 percent. It was still a bad number, right? This is still bad. But you know, we can sort of get to figuring that out. One thing I want to say is, there's a lot of articles that go into how like net exports contributed to this. Um, this is an accounting identity in in econ, um, and so if you're blaming the low, the the bad GDP number on on exports or net exports or imports. Uh, you don't understand basic math. Um, so just ignore all takes that, that deal with that. Um, so so that, that's sort of like what's happened now. Um, one of the things I think I've been consistent in criticizing the Biden administration about is not being explicit about the trade-off that the, they and their partners in Congress uh, made when, uh, they, when all these sort of uh, COVID relief plans were enacted. The choice set that should have been clearly articulated to the American public that was not was we're going to protect jobs and we're going to get unemployment down fast so that people go back to work. Because we know that if people stay out of work a very long time, it is very, very bad, not not just for the individual workers, but for families, people lose skills, the economy suffers, and the growth of the nation suffers in the long term. That is a bad outcome. So we're going to make the choice to put policies in place that will get people back to work far sooner than expected. And in fact, you know, if you look at what economists were expecting for when employment would get back to sort of, quote, normal levels before COVID, we were expecting 2024. We're already blown past that in the first quarter of 2021, um, where we're actually down to 3.5% unemployment uh, with our, our preferred method of calculating it. So that's great. That's a fantastic policy win. The cost was that prices would run hot. And I was, like many economists, expecting the price running hot to last for just a very short while. We were wrong about that. I was wrong about that. You need to own your mistakes. Uh, Prices are gonna run hot for a little bit longer. We are seeing positive signs that we hit the peak of the price increases in the last two or three months. We're seeing a lot more signs that we're gonna to start to see deceleration of price growth going into this year. Probably not enough to help the Dems. Um, but you know we are wrong about that, but like that's the choice. that So people are being hurt by high gas prices. People are being hurt by housing costs rising so high, unless you already own your house, which two thirds of Americans do. So you're on a fixed rate mortgage, so it doesn't really matter. Um, unless your property taxes went up like crazy, but you know, that's another story for another day. Um, you know, so that's sort of the, the basic nutshell that I think I would say is, look, quarter one was bad. I expect it to be bad. It's not as bad as it looks, but it's still bad. You know, we made the trade off right, to, to basically juice, to get unemployment back. We're gonna have high inflation. Now we're entering the danger zone. And this is where I'll let Andrew come back from something because the danger zone is we're driving a car we're, in, we're, we're in behind a tractor trailer that's braking, and we have an idiot on the cell phone on the car behind us. How quickly do we tap our brakes? Because we don't want to hit the truck. This is what the Fed's trying to do. We don't want to hit the truck because that's bad. We also don't want to have the idiot on the cell phone hit us from behind. So the Fed's trying to slow down the, the price growth, pull the economy back a little bit without losing the employment gains that we've had. And this is a very delicate tightrope that's going to sort of be a dance for the next couple of months. Historically speaking, the feds kind of struggled at this.
2: Yeah, and the thing we really don't want to do is get rear-ended up underneath the truck and get the worst of both. Um, Let me ask you There you go, exactly. Since we're we're talking prices, let's talk supply side for just a second. I was sitting behind a train yesterday. I was watching all those containers go by, the double-stacked on the train. Um, We talked a lot about supply side stuff. We talked about a, a supply side inflationary curve back during the pandemic. We're moved on from that a little bit. What's the data saying about that? Is that lingering into what's going on now or did it wash out and now we're dealing with more of the oncoming traffic, as you said, as opposed to the rear ending part?
3: So we still have supply chain issues that are still driving up some of these, these the challenges. We can still see that the price of a lumber is exceedingly elevated. And we know the price of some stuff coming from Asia is still elevated and we still have backlogs. So, you know, uh, the data that we're seeing is showing that those effects are are, are mediating. They're, they're getting, you know, less bad over time, but they're not coming down as fast as we would hope. And this is part of the problem uh, and as we want. And part of it is because yeah, this isn't, you know, COVID was an international event. And as much as we want to criticize the U.S. Res policy response under both Trump and Biden, um, and sort of also the sort of the, the response of the American public, um, compared to uh, a lot of other countries in the world, particularly in Asia, um, some of the Asian countries, some Asian countries did great, but some of the Asian countries where we get a lot of our imports from, uh, not so great. Uh, take up of vaccines is not as good as what we have here. So,
2: so another it's getting gra- better and it's getting better
3: bag. it's getting better but it's getting better slower than we would expect much like the cold that i had took a lot longer than i wanted for it to, for me to get over it
2: yeah it's interesting i had a fence quoted for my backyard and they won't even quote you wood fencing right now they said nobody can afford it anyway and it would take us too long to get it so we don't even bother quoting it right now that's how bad the wood yeah. is
3: I, i'm trying to build an addition a, 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 a an adu accessory dwelling unit um on, on my property Uh, And, you know, we're having the architect drop the plans now. Um, I'm not anticipating starting construction on that until maybe mid next year.
2: Wow. Yeah, it's a mess. Uh, Talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend. uh, Let's talk about one other item you kind of you mentioned in there and kind of skirted by it for just a second, though. Inflation and prices. Everybody thinks they're necessarily coupled together, but that's not exactly the truth. They're not exactly dead set together. Talk about the relationship there with the prices a consumer sees on the shelves and inflation because there is some lag there. There's some waves to those sorts of things. Talk about that because everybody just assumes, well, inflation prices are linked together. They go up and they go up. That's not exactly it's a little more nuanced than that, isn't it?
3: Well, yeah. I think the nuance is it depends on what type of uh, U.S. household you are. Um, If you're a household that owns your home on a fixed rate mortgage, property price increase, property price appreciation, inflation, rent inflation doesn't really affect you, right? And that's a huge part of your budget. Now, if you're a renter or you're someone trying to buy and you have to buy because maybe you have to move to a city because you got a job there, right? That's going to weigh pretty heavily on you. That's going to be a pretty big impact on your budget. Um, if you're again, like we saw this for a long time, we talked about the used car market. If you were someone who couldn't afford a new car and you need to buy a used car, you were paying a lot of money for that. Um, if you're someone whose household consumes lots of energy, uh, maybe you have a lot of little rug rats running around, um, you, you're you're subject to a lot more inflation than say uh, a, a childless couple or you know a single person living at home or or just a couple with one kid, you know. Um, so the the these these price changes affect people differently. You know, it also depends on where you shop. Like certain retailers are going to see higher price increases than others because of how they source their supply chains. So you know, if you shop at Costco, maybe it's uh, when you're in that demographic, you're you're not so affected. And I think that's sort of you know where we might lose track as as policymakers up here in D.C. is we're in a particular kind of bubble most of us are homeowners, most of us do buy from Costco, you know, most of us are fairly insulated from a lot of the costs that uh, a lot of Americans outside of these big cities uh, are dealing with. And we have to sort of keep that in mind. And I understand, you know, why there's some, some angst there and why there's desire to bring that back down. You know, again, the trade-off was, did you want to be working, right? And have a job and not be out of work? Or do we want to face these high prices i would take the higher prices as as a, as a choice every day over over leaving people long term unemployed and just i think that destroys families far more than you know what i hope is you know maybe another year of dealing with price changes that are coming down but still elevated and maybe we get back to normal next year right yeah. if that's the choice that, that I'm, I'm happy with the temporary pain there
2: yeah Jericho hill but, our economist friend uh breaking this down so even i can understand it we're going to take a quick break we come back on gotcha. we'll get into more of this economic stuff we'll get into the politics of it it is an election year i'm going to ask him a little bit of rapid fire see what an economist thinks about some of the campaign lingo that we're going to be hearing over the next couple of months jericho hill on her right after Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, uh, in the fancy-dancy graphic print t-shirt, because that's what all the economists are wearing these days. Uh, Let me Jer- bust out my
3: tariff shirt sometime that we got uh, Senator Orrin Hatch to wear. Scott Lennon <laughs> would love it.
2: Yeah, the late, the late Senator Orrin Hatch. God bless him. Mm-hmm. Uh, great Twitter follow, by the way. I uh, don't think his replacement will be nearly as fun. No, (laughs) Um, uh, let's let's talk economy for just a second. This is an election year. So I want to ask you a couple of things. You're the economist and I'm not. I just want I'm going to throw you some of the buzzwords we're going to hear, because let's be honest, this is the eighth or ninth most important election of my lifetime uh, to be followed by the (laughs) 10th most important election of the lifetime. Next week, we hear the exact same. I agree
3: with you on that. I am with you 100 percent.
2: Yeah, we hear the same economic terminology every election so i'm just going to ask you how they land with you when you hear them on a campaign ad um you're there in northern virginia so i'm sure your airwaves are all campaign commercials right now it's pretty brutal where i'm at um so let's hit a couple of these real quick um, but just
3: be glad you're not in georgia
2: uh, we, uh, our friend uh, Jason Downey, just had him on the program talking oh. about it, and he said, You know, there is nothing but campaign ads right now. I was just talking to a radio buddy, he was like, Yeah, I hate it. He's like, All my commercials on the radio station, but it's paying the bills. We paid the whole quarter off in one ad buy. Thank you, Club for Growth. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, let's hit some of these items. Okay, when you hear a campaign talk about lower taxes, how does that hit your economic ears? Because a congressman, a senator, even a governor they don't really have a whole lot of say over tax policy, but each and every one of them always campaign on tax policy. How does it hit your economic ears when you hear that on a commercial?
3: They can campaign on what their state and local locality control, which is typically a sales tax or a property tax, right? Some states have income taxes, but not very many. Um, you know, I would say um, we're dealing with inflation right now. So sort of the last thing we need to really do is to uh, do a, a, a A tax decrease, which will put more money uh, back into the economy, at a time we're trying to take money out of the economy and slow price growth. Uh, You know, I I get it. I get wanting to to have lower taxes for folks, especially folks that might be hurting. But right, that could that could backfire. That could send inflation up. But then again, maybe these governors don't care about that because the inflation is Biden's problem. It's that's not the governor's problem.
2: Yeah. Speaking of inflation, every election I've ever had, it is. Uh, Reaganomics, the Clinton economy, the Bush economy, the Bush recession, uh, the Obama recession. You see where I'm going with this. It's always like this. The Trump tax Biden cuts, inflation. whatever. So now we're yeah. going to deal with the Biden economy, the Biden inflation. When you hear that terminology, because we hear it every election year, whoever's in the chair, they get blamed for the economy. How does that hit your economic years?
3: Um, a lot of what we're dealing with are were things outside of our control in the in the country because we were dealing with a, you know, worldwide pandemic so it's somewhat unfair to pin it all on on biden's policies but it's also fair to pin a bit of it on him. and i think you know especially like you know hey they they wanted to get a lot of money they right into the economy to basically make sure the unemployment got back uh to low levels that that folks that we had um and that's the consequence and so they made policy choices that that created the inflation too that helped bring it along so they deserve part of the, the blame on this not all of it but but part of it but hey that's the breaks of being the guy in
2: charge. Another one that's the brakes of the guy in charge because it is a lagging indicator, no matter what anybody else tells you about gas prices. Uh, now, obviously, there's a there's a caveat to this one because the president campaigned on reducing fossil fuels. That means they reduce output, they reduce planning. So that some of that is on him, but there was the war on Ukraine. That's going to crack things up. When you hear about gas prices and the, we're going to fix the gas prices and the Biden did that stickers on all the gas pumps I keep seeing all over the place, how does that hit your economic years?
3: I mean, look, this is sort of the two-faced nature of politics, right? You said Biden, you know, was, you know, campaigning for cleaner energy. He was to, to sort of reduce our reliance on gas-powered cars and whatnot and bring in more electrified vehicles. That clearly was a policy choice. That would imply that we'd have less capacity for, for gas and that would be a, a, an upward pressure on prices. And then, you know, they also want to release a bunch of oil barrels from a strategic reserve to lessen that. It sort of goes against the um, policy choice. Again, like maybe it's bad politics, but you know, when you and I talk, like I just feel like owning what, the, what, what your goal is and stating clearly what the trade-offs are to, that you're going to get to the goal. So, hey, we want cleaner vehicles. We want a cleaner environment. Uh, we want to reduce our reliance on gas. We want to lose our reliance on Russian energy good goals guess what there are consequences to that again like you know i maybe maybe you know two-thirds you know world phenomenal one-third biden's to blame you know like he's got to own some of it yeah i just i just wish that we could be more honest about this
2: yeah here's one that we need to be more honest about that we talk about every single time i'm going to bring back manufacturing jobs now i always would love for one enterprising reporter to ask them when they're going to bring back tooling and ball bearings, because you're not having any manufacturing in the country until we bring those two things back. And we don't do those in America anymore because you got to have that to have the bigger manufacturing. But when you hear manufacturing, that's a big thing in economics because of the indicators for it. It's something that America has declined in doing and we import it more than we export it. How do you hear we're going to bring back those manufacturing jobs?
3: I mean, look, the developed world has moved those jobs to the developing world. Uh, That was a choice set made by pretty much every country. Um, The leading edge industries are not manufacturing and will not be. Those are not manufacturers, not the driver of growth anymore. It used to be, but the world and the economy changed. I would hope that our policymakers makers who wanna keep the US focused on delivering those drivers of economic growth to produce jobs, both high skill and low skill down the line you know, in these emerging technologies, you know, in these emerging, you know, industries, that's where we, that would be good policy. So, like, I, I, I get for the industrial workers in say West Virginia, right? You, do you have, you know, coal? We're not coal's not coming back. Like, you know, auto manufacturing to like what it was in the '80s is not coming back. And politicians should just simply be honest about that, and we should work to sort of think about how do we shift our job training how do we shift our educational system to produce workers that will thrive in that new economy and thinking 10 20 years down the road look i 20 years ago i was working i mean you had the you had you know your guests from the from the from the board of education i was a student member of the board of regents of the state of georgia i was pushing for policies that would increase funding for our community colleges and small local colleges in Georgia, because their infrastructure their what they had available in the classrooms for for students to learn was just paltry, And that's where a lot of our, you know, sort of um, um, skilled jobs, not necessarily college educated, but skilled trade jobs um, and, and, and whatnot, were you know, where folks would go to get their, 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 their associate's degree or their, their training or their tradesmanship, you know, and we weren't funding that and, and we should. So, so yeah, let, let's think about what, what the world's going to look like in 10, 20 years, what these emerging technologies are and figure out how to, how to get those companies here, how to create them. Let's, uh, let's do what we should do. Let's take the waive the visa requirements for all the smart people from Russia to get them to, to, to leave that country and come over here to the land of opportunity. Let's open up that can of, let's open up that, that can to, to everybody. And let's just bring the bright people over here. Let's bring the energetic and industrial people over and have them start companies, right? Immigrants start companies at rates far higher here in the U.S. than native-born folks do. And those are the folks that we want to have because they're going to create the jobs
2: of the future. Yeah, it's another topic for another day, something we're working on for a future episode, but that labor gap. Hmm, it's almost identical to the drop in immigration over the last two years, isn't it? Funny how that works out. Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that in a future episode. One billion
3: Americans it unites both left pundits and right pundits.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it, let's let's open that can of worms another day, shall we? Yes. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, one of our favorites. She is the senior editor for Ordinary-Times.com. She is an attorney. Uh, She is a lot of things in the writing community and people on Twitter mostly like her. Our friend Dem Carpenter is joining us (laughs) once again. How are you, ma'am?
1: I'm well, Andrew. Thank you for having me.
2: Uh, How are the HIPAA wars?
1: (laughs) That's a very angry HIPAA. Gotta be careful.
2: (laughs) For those of you not paying attention uh since she is a lawyer and does uh, healthcare related things hipaa is one of her um i don't know what you want to call it uh things of the moment she pays high attention to so if you mess it up on twitter you're likely to get a tweet about it but uh today we're going to talk a little lawyer ease you are a lawyer one of them law splainer type people what do you make of the aba talking about getting rid of the lsat now we've heard this in the news a lot lately uh, there was some debate, I thought, pretty unfairly um, during the Supreme Court nominations about uh, LSAT scores. You wrote a piece to Ordinary Times that pretty much dispelled that. However, uh, if we're going to get rid of something, we have to discuss what its actual use is. So let's just start there with the nomenclature. What is the LSAT? What's it supposed to be? And what is it being used as that folks want it reformed?
1: The LSAT is the law school admissions test, and just to be clear, what the ABA is doing is they are not, quote, getting rid of the LSAT. The LSAT is still un- existing. What, what it is, is the rule um, that the ABA used to have for accredited law schools was that they were required to require an entrance exam, an LSAT or other. Um, some, some used GREs, but they, what they have done is they've said that they are no longer requiring accredited law schools to require an entrance exam at all. They still can't. And I suspect a lot of schools probably will continue to do so for a variety of reasons. But the LSAT is a standardized test, like a, like the GRE or the MCAT, which is the medical school equivalent. And it is a um, an aptitude test to, that's designed. Whether it does it accurately or well, I don't can't speak to that. But it is designed to determine whether or not uh, one per, a person's reasoning skills, their logic skills, their um, whether they actually have a, a good chance of success in law school based on how they think, um, how they solve problems, their comprehension, things like that. So it's not a test about what do you know about the law. You don't know, you, you know, theoretically know nothing about the law before you have actually gone to law school. So there are no legal questions on the LSAT. So that's what it is. And the intention of it is to, as a measure, a metric to help law schools accept students who they believe. Have a chance of success.
2: We went now, we went over this when we did the Supreme Court nomination hearings for uh, soon to be Justice uh, Jackson here shortly. Uh, Just to tee it up though, for the trivia buffs out there, how many law questions are on the LSAT?
1: Zero. There are no legal questions on the LSAT. You are not presupposed to have any legal knowledge before you sit for that exam. You have not been to law school yet. They don't expect you to know the law.
2: So, just for the people that will never have the great pleasure of taking an LSAT, uh, I'm not one of them because I actually took the thing just on a lark just to see how I do on it. What it? This isn't like a normal test. This isn't This isn't just fill in bubble fields. This isn't you know flashcards. Explain to people what is actually going on on this test because a lot of folks maybe they haven't done logic problems and things like this, just kind of given a little bit of an explainer of what the test is actually like to take.
1: Uh, it's been a um, couple of decades since I took it. So I don't recall every section. Um, I know, you know, there are like any other standardized tests where you have to read a passage and answer questions about it. And, um, but my favorite part is, as you mentioned, the logic puzzles. And and those are the ones where you have a list of Uh, statements such as, you know, there are five people at a party and the person in red is sitting next to Mary. Mary's not sitting next to the person in green. The person in green is eating chicken and, you know, things like that. And based on the information you're giving, you are supposed to figure out where is everybody sitting, what color are they wearing and what are they eating? It sounds funny or um, confusing, but, and a lot of people really hate those puzzles. I love them. I have an app on my phone where I do them for fun. Um, so that's one of the one of the sections and then again I think the rest is mostly uh, reading comprehension and and the ability to write clearly.
2: Yeah, well that explains a few things about your personality we were wondering about that you do those things for fun. M. Carpenter, lawyer joining us senior writer at, at ordinary-times.com. What what's your general feel on this though? I know you said this is going to be more of a guidance but the ABA does have outsized influence. Um, I know you don't think they're going to get rid of it totally, but what, what is your feel that the reaction at the academic level, at the law school level, is going to be for this?
1: Well, I think that, like I said, I don't think that a lot of law schools are going to be eager to dump it, to get rid of it altogether. Um, I actually did very well in the LSAT. Um, And it's a good thing that I did because I admit that my undergraduate grades, they were not, um, not particularly impressive. You know, I graduated, I made it through, but um, they weren't I wasn't, you know, top of my class or anything, Uh, but however, as I said, I did very well in this LSAT, and I applied to four law schools. I was accepted to four law schools. Um, Three of them were out of state, so, and those are, and I mentioned that just because it's difficult to get into an out-of-state law school in general, and so I can tell you that I, from my experience, they look at the LSAT score very closely, especially if you do very well. In fact, one of the schools that I applied to actually solicited me to apply Uh, was rutgers at the camden campus in new jersey sent me um, a packet asking me to apply waive the application fee uh, because they were actually trying to prove or trying to show a correlation between lsat scores and law school success being stronger than academic uh, achievement or you know your grades from undergrad Um, unfortunately the money they were offering me was not enough to make me want to live in Camden, New Jersey for three years, and so I didn't go, but um, so I think, you know, there are, there are schools that believe it to be a better indicator than than just a GPA uh, of one's ability to succeed in law school, and, um, and for me, I think that was important because not that I couldn't have done better in, in college, but I commuted I, uh, for a lot of my time there at WVU. I, I drove back and forth. Um, I worked full time. My grades weren't as good as they could have been. Now, if I'd had all the time in the world to study, then you know I may have done better. But it wasn't. I wasn't in a position to do that. So um, the LSAT I think gave me a leg up to make up for some of that that time I um, couldn't put into my uh, undergraduate schooling. For others. I know standardized testing is a negative they don't necessarily test well and it can be unfair to them if they are judged just on the lsat um, more than their grades so i think the adoption of a hybrid approach is maybe a, a good idea uh, for law schools to look into um, i think there should be some there there needs to be some weeding of law school Uh, applicants and and not everyone gets accepted. There is one school that that was known for basically accepting anyone who applied and it was not an accredited school. Don't know if it is now. It wasn't for a very long time, I know. And what they did was they would basically let in anybody who applied and was willing to pay their very, very exorbitant annual tuition. And then after the first year, they would basically kick out half the class for poor academic performance or for not, not doing as well um, as they as they should. In the meantime, they pocketed their money and left them with the debt. So I think there is something to be said for trying to figure out who is going to do well in law school. And I think and that's why this test measures how you are your ability to answer questions in a certain way or to think logically, because they think that those are the skills necessary for law school success.
2: Since you brought it up and it's been uh, two decades since you did the law school process, um it sounds like this has been an ongoing issue because if you know schools like rutgers was trying to do their numbers and their data on this all the way back then this sounds like a problem that's just kind of always been ongoing and this is just the latest chapter in it is that an accurate way of portraying this
1: i think so yeah sounds accurate
2: great talking to m carpenter our good friend and legal eagle uh, let's take the other side of this. The argument you just briefly touched on it is that if schools got rid of the LSAT, it would increase gatekeeping. It would not allow students, like you said, uh, to get in that otherwise might not have a certain connections. Do you think that's a valid criticism and do you think that's an ongoing problem or a problem that could get worse?
1: I do think that's an ongoing problem and the problem that could get worse. I think that there, that, oh, there is a lot of gatekeeping. Um, and yeah, you know your ability to focus only on your schoolwork and your academics is a luxury that people with certain backgrounds don't have. Um, I was somebody who went to college um, with some small loans and a couple of small scholarships and a whole lot of Pell Grant. Uh, My my expected family contribution was zero uh, because my parents made very little money, so they weren't expected to foot the bill for any of that. So Um, You know, I had my tuition paid my room and board for my first year when I lived in the dorm, and then a little bit of extra money to live on but that's not enough I so I worked most of through college, um, especially toward the end of of my undergrad years where I worked full time. Um, And there was just a lot of real life going on so I didn't have as much time to study I couldn't spend all evening in the library or all weekend in the library uh, or studying because I had to work so. I think that that did affect my grades, my grade point average, um, some other things that happened in my, in my personal life at the time that impacted my ability to really focus. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that the problem of the of taking away the standardized test for people who have um, had an easier time of it in, in undergrad, you know, may, might have a leg up and those are... You know, generally people that don't have to focus a lot uh, on outside things and can and can focus on school, or they have, you know, family with connections that can help to get them in. Um, on the flip side, I do understand that testing is sometimes biased in certain ways to certain life experiences, um, that there are people who just simply do not test well, that it's it's not fair for them. And I do understand that. So that's why, again, some hybrid of the two or some uh, flexibility in admissions is the important thing.
2: Talking to our friend, Em Carpenter, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about that actual law school experience. Uh, we're going to loan lead that into the student loan debate that's going on why law school is so expensive is that one of those prohibitive gatekeeping things we've been talking about it and a little bit more about the LSAT our talk with our lawyer friend senior editor at ordinary-times.com and Carpenter continues on her tell right after this her tell our good friend m carpenter one of our favorites one of the smartest people we know great writer senior editor at ordinary-times.com make sure you go check out all her work she usually does wednesday ritz but she's been a little busy saving the world in her day job so that's been a little spotty but she did do one last week thank you very much for showing up to work appreciate that (laughs) um that's a joke i'm kidding uh let's talk about that law school experience for just a second law school has always been prohibitive it's always been tough to get into it's always been extremely expensive. Are we reaching kind of a critical point though, where maybe it's gotten too inclusive, too hard to get into and too expensive?
1: Um, too expensive. Yes. I think is definitely too expensive. I, uh, education costs or well, not the cost, but the cost to the students, not necessarily the cost of providing that education goes up all the time, goes up every year. Um, And in law school, just by way of example, when I finished college, I had about $16,000 in loan debt from my four years of undergrad. Uh, My first year of law school, for which there are no Pell Grants, um, my first year's debt from law school was $16,000. And I know it's probably a lot more than that now. Obviously, (laughs) in 20 years, that's gone up. Um, And I guess, you know, they expect that once you graduate from law school, you're, you know, you're going to be in a position to get a, well, well-paying job and to pay those loans back with ease. Um, I'm one of those who did not go to big law, go to a firm directly out. In fact, I started out in a small town, small county prosecutor's office making about $30,000 a year. Um, So it's not the same experience for everyone. So uh, yeah, I think the cost is, is a bit expenses and depending on what you plan to do with your law degree and if you want to be a public defender which i've said on here before my opinion is the highest calling of a lawyer if you want to make a your career in public defense you're you're never going to make those huge salaries and, and pay back these exorbitant loans so um i think that's a good argument then for some debt forgiveness or programs for people who take those types of jobs um, and aren't making the big, you know, six-figure incomes. Um, as far as how much gatekeeping should go on for law school admissions, I think the best way to weed out people who shouldn't be there is your first year of classes. That first year, your one L year. notoriously difficult and and some people say is designed to weed out those who don't have what it takes Uh, Yes, it's a different it's a different way of learning it's a different type of education than people are used to Um, Takes some adjustment you definitely have to study there's not as much ability to kind of skate by with uh, your your intelligence without actually studying a lot so a lot of people don't make it don't come back the end of your first year your second year a lot of people who were there the the year before are gone Um, unfortunately that means they may have been left with a year's worth of law school debt that they now may not have the money to pay back so it's um, it's a hard balance
2: see this is the thing people talk about lawyers talking to carpenter our friend this is the same problem every other career field is currently having where the promise is, well, you get your college degree and then you get a great paying job. Well, the promise is you go to law school and you get an even better paying job. But the reality is there's only so many of those better paying jobs and there's a lot more lawyers coming out of law school than there are those great paying jobs, right? So the there's a problem with the pipeline system of saying, hey, go to law school and get a great job. I'll just take all this student debt. Law school, it seems like the law school, if anything, it may be even more predatory with the lending than with just the regular college stuff that we're seeing, isn't it?
1: I think so. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't think attention is paid to those who are not going to to come out of the um, out of law school with a, a, a huge job. There is, you know, there's a lot of deferments and there's um, income based repayment options and, and a lot of uh, ways in which, you know, you're Loan payments can be adjusted, um, but they all have their downfalls. You know, the, the lower your payment, the longer you're going to be paying and the more interest you're going to be paying. Um, so there's a lot of to, to, of considerations there. Um, you know, a lot of lawyers, when they hear people talk about, you know, they're, they want to go to law school, you always hear, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And, and they'll try to talk you out of it and say, you know, do something else. I would never do that. Um, I love I love being a lawyer. I love going to law school, I think it's a, it is a noble profession. I don't care what you say, Andrew. Um, (laughs) I'm glad you do
2: it so I can lean on you and I don't have to do it. So yes, I'll agree with you.
1: You make a lot of lawyer jokes at my expense is why I say that. Um, But I think it's an, it's a good profession. It's a noble profession. Everyone hates lawyers until they need one and, and, and they actually get help from one. So I think it's a, I don't. I don't want to dissuade people from going to law school. I don't want to encourage people to take on um, two hundred thousand dollars worth of debt for their their legal education. I certainly did not, uh, and I know a lot of people want to go to the top tier law schools, so you know, helped to help them get that high paying job, and, and and it might work out for them. But you can go to a um, school a perfectly. Perfectly good law school like I did WVU. It's not uh, Harvard. It's not Yale. But I'm doing just fine. And I know you know I have classmates who have, who went on to firms and, and are doing very well. So I think that you know you don't have to go into six figure or, or double six figure debt um, to get a law degree. You can do it. Just you, you know adjust your expectations, adjust your standards. You can do well and, and not incur that much debt. It's everybody thinks that you're going to, um, every lawyer has $250,000 worth of debt. That's not the case. Certainly not the case for me and uh, probably not the norm. So I think that you hear the loudest, most egregious tales and egregious stories, but I think that it's still, it's doable. Um, Do I wish that I had less debt? Yes. I wish I had uh, been able to pay uh, more of it. At the time, a lot of law schools, WVU included, discourage or prohibit you to have a job while you're in law school, especially if you're a 1L in your first year. You are not allowed to work outside of um, maybe perhaps a work-study job at the law school. So, you know, those are all things that, that go into it. And obviously, um, I didn't have the ability to pay for it out of pocket. So do I wish that I could do it all over again and skip law school? Absolutely not.
2: Is that antiquated though? I mean, is it, we've seen it with like things like sports, they've relaxed standards where, where people can work now, other areas with things like the gig economy, with technology where people can basically work online and make a good living or have side gigs or be a, you know, you can be an Instagram superstar. I'm so told I'm not on Instagram, but I hear tell there's folks that can do that sort of thing, make money at it. I'm just, I'm just for the example though, is it antiquated to say, no, you can't work a job during law school, because with things like the gig economy, there's a lot more flexibility in what is defined as work. Is that something that should be reviewed?
1: You know, it may be, maybe antiquated, like you said, maybe it's not that way anymore. Um, I know some students worked anyway. I worked. I did. I have, but I had a, um, a work study job on campus. So maybe it didn't count, but I still worked full time. So um, or as close as I could get with that job. But yeah, um, again, if you're not cutting it, if your grades are not good enough and you're because you're working full time, then, and, you know, they could, there's other ways they can just, you know, you can go on academic probation. You can lose your um you know, lose your spot in the class. So I don't think it's necessary to prohibit from work. And that is a, a good point that maybe that's changing. But uh, the extent to which you can have a job and do, be successful in law school, will vary person to person, but it's not, it, I, I agree with you that these days as probably it may be less common than it was 20 years ago. Um, not sure.
2: Talking to him, Carpenter, our friend. Okay, you've been open about it. You've wrote about it. You've talked about it. I've talked to you about it because it keeps coming up where do you land on student debt? Um, big push now, uh, there's more talk that President Biden might do some kind of a forgiveness or a forbearance on student loan debt. You have been very open that there was no way you could have gone to college, let alone law school, without student debt. Um, you've talked about it openly. You just talked about having to carry that debt. Where do you fall on something like student loan forgiveness?
1: Well, it's, it's a troubling topic for me. Um on the one hand, yes, I I, uh, experienced the the burden of my debt, especially earlier in my career when I wasn't making as much money, Um, but I never, you know, regretted it. I I still believed that, you know, we were raised, and I think most kids these days are still raised, and I'm guilty of sort of pushing my children that way as well. We were raised to believe that a college education is necessary, that it's a a goal that you should want to achieve um, if you're going to have success. And you know, I may be old fashioned. I, I still believe that. Yes, I know there are traits that make a lot of money, and that would be fine with me as well. But I still am very uh, encouraging of my children that their plan should be to go to college. And a lot of us grew up with that. And so um, straight out of high school in, the, in May and into college in August, you know, there's not much a, a break in between. And I think if I had taken a break to, you know, get a job instead and, and try to save money, I don't know that I ever would have, Actually, gone back, or at least maybe later in life, I would have. I don't know if I'd taken a year off or two years off at that stage of life if I would have actually ended up going to college. So, um, but you know, now I have these these student loan bills I'm still paying every month. And do I need debt forgiveness me personally? no, I can pay my bills. <laughs> right now I have the money, I have enough income to, to pay the bills, but I'm lucky and I understand that. Um, what I do think is that if there was some forgiveness, uh, means testing, I think is, is would be an important part of that. I don't think everybody needs it. Um, I understand the argument that we end up with a lot of uh, middle and upper class people benefiting and the um, people who didn't go to college or did get, um, you know, degrees where they're making a lot of money that they end up uh, shouldering that burden. So I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that, and, um, and I don't like the argument when I hear it of "I paid my loans, why didn't you, uh, or why shouldn't you?" Um, you know, there's a lot of things where things get better in the future than they were for past generations, and I don't like the "it's not fair" argument so much. Um, but it, so, yeah, I think overall, a means-tested arrangement would be um, something I would support. Um, an interest you know when somebody's been paying for 20 years and they've paid off more than they borrowed and they still owe more than they've paid off something is wrong with that system Uh, my loans are not like that but um, you know those are those are I find to be quite insidious and I think that you know those loans are signed for and agreed to by um, 18 and 20 year old kids who've been told their entire lives that they have no choice they've really got to go to college if they want to be a success and you know they're think they're doing the right thing and then now you have you know people pointing their fingers at them and telling them they're bums and they just want handouts and you know how dare you complain that you can't afford you know a car or a house because you have two hundred thousand dollars in debt and you've been paying it for 15 years so there's things that can be done, I think, on um, short of full-out forgiveness that I would support.
2: Uh, M. Carpenter, wonderful conversation. Always enjoy talking to you. Um, you do wonderful work as our senior editor at times.com. I promise you folks, we could not do it without her. Um, let folks know where they can find your writing and your social media, and they can all follow you, which I should do, since I was, I think, one of your first Twitter followers, and I think you were one of my first ones, so tell everybody how they can join our merry band of misfits.
1: Sure, you can find me on Twitter at WVEsquires, um, and you, of course, on uh, can find me on Ordinary Times, where I'm, sometimes I write long forms, sometimes I do my writs on Wednesdays, um, sometimes I'm in the comments. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes i hey i'm busy um but yeah please if you follow me on twitter that'd be great it's ridiculous that andrew has double the followers that i do so uh, help me to correct that
2: um i say the world is as it is but we'll have to leave it there and disagree <laughs> on that uh you are marvelous and wonderful thank you so much our friend m Carmader, ladies and gentlemen uh we'll talk to you again soon ma'am thank you for the time today
1: thank you andrew
2: thank you show. Okay, we're not the only ones having crazy elections with weird outcomes here in America. Our Irish friends just did this as well. Uh, they had some elections, historic elections. So we're going to do what we always do. We're going to go to Ireland talk about it. our buddy Connor Duffy returns to Heard Tell. Been a minute since we've had him on. Thrilled to get to talk to him. And we have to be very reverential now because since the last time we talked to him, He is now, or within a few weeks of becoming, Dr. Connor Duffy. How are you, you august and notable member of our society, sir?
5: I'm not doing too bad, Andrew, not doing too bad. I suppose I should clarify for your audience as well, though, of course, that I am the type of doctor that you know, if someone asks on a plane, is there a doctor on board? I very much need to stay in my seat, though. <laughs> you know, I'm not not too good in one of those emergencies. <laughs>
2: yeah, he has a doctor in one of those sciences that I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce out loud here, but he is uh, a great guy. He's been on the program before. Happy to have you back, my friend. Okay, I'm 40. I'll be 42 years old here in two weeks. Don't tell anybody. Explain to 80s kid me how the political arm of the IRA is now the predominant political force in Ireland, because that's what just happened. Now, Hmm. to people our age, this is almost unfathomable to younger people. It seemed like it was an inevitability. That's a lot of history in a short period of time. The old quote uh, comes to mind. It happened gradually, then suddenly. Is that kind of Hmm. what we're dealing with here?
5: That's, yeah, exactly. So um, there's two elections we do need to cover um, here to fully get across what's just happened. The first one happened a few years ago, and that's when, at uh, the start of 2020, uh, just before COVID, um, Ireland here in the south, or the 26 counties of Ireland, we had an election where Sinn Féin, the political wing of the IRA, as you would have known them during the Troubles, they uh, won the most votes. And um, because of some Bad strategy and the peculiarities of the Irish electoral system, they actually didn't end up with the most seats, but they were they received more votes than anyone else. Then recently, the election that happened a few days ago that has everyone talking is that um, uh, was up in Northern Ireland, which is the six counties of Ulster that were partitioned um, 101 years ago. And there was an election and Sinn Fein again won the most votes, but now they also have the most seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly which is the devolved government of um, Northern Ireland, similar to how Scotland and Wales have their own um, individual governments as well as Westminster in the UK. That's what the Northern Ireland Assembly is in Northern Ireland. And um, as of this election, Sinn Féin is now the largest party, and that is something that has never happened before. Um, A party that was in favour of of, um, uniting the six counties of Northern Ireland with the 26 counties of Ireland has never had a majority or has never been the largest party in the Northern Ireland assembly before. So that is, a, that is absolutely massive. That is really groundbreaking um, because Northern Ireland as a state was more or less designed that this would never happen. And here we have it um, 101 years later, as I say, and it has now happened. And it is now the political wing of the IRA who have actually managed to pull that off and be the largest party and wanting to unite Ireland. But this has been a long time in the coming. Since um, the Good Friday Agreement, Sinn Féin have been really steadily building a lot of support. And there's a lot of different reasons for that happening. Um, As you say, for people who are a little bit older, it's maybe a big shock, people who remember the Troubles. But you have to remember that the Troubles ended over 20 years ago now. There's a lot of people voting who weren't even alive when it happened. And so the issues that have dominated these elections have naturally changed for a lot of these people. It's like, well, it's the here and now that they're talking about and they're caring about not um, the troubles which have been over, as I say, even before they were born. So that is a large part of it. It's a generation turning over to a large extent. There's a big part of what's
2: happened here. So let's talk about what those issues actually are. Sinn Féin, um, underneath the uh, obviously the nationalism and the IRA connections, it started as a workers party uh what's mm-hmm. the issues that have really brought them to the fore? because the last especially the last 15 20 years the democratic unionist party the dup that was the ruling party did they mm-hmm. do stuff wrong did shin fade do something right what's the dynamic there that they have overtaken the dup and taken power here
5: it's definitely both <laughs> um you this is often the case in these situations the dup had a turnover of leadership not too long ago their previous leader arlene foster was previously involved in a big scandal called the cash to ash scandal which was basically to to really sum it up quickly they threw a really bad bit of legislation that resulted in people being paid to just burn wood in their houses (laughs) Um, and it led to a lot of people um led to an awful lot of money being wasted uh certainly not what the law was intended to do became a big problem and there was that was That was quite a while ago now, that was quite a few years ago, but her leadership was sort of in a bit of a problem for a little while there. Then Brexit happened, and a lot of sides in Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK kind of started falling down on Brexit lines. The DUP had a bit more influence because of the way an election went in Westminster, that they were actually kind of the kingmakers of coalitions, so the Tories needed their support to stay in. But that gave the DUP a bit of a shot in the arm in a time where things weren't so good. But then after Brexit happened, you remember that Northern Ireland actually voted to stay in the EU, um, even though the majority of um, the DUP were opposed to staying in the EU. So there was that disconnect. So Sinn Féin has gotten a lot of support that way because not only has leaving the EU been unpopular in Northern Ireland, um, the DUP have also taken a bit of an extreme stance on it where they are opposed to the current compromise that has managed to have Britain leaving the EU while Northern Ireland and Ireland and the UK kind of retaining this sort of special arrangement that stops, um, you know, orders being put up on the island or anything like that. The DUP essentially wants to scrap all that. A lot of people are not happy with that, both the national side, but also the unionist side, because they're concerned about, you know, what would the effects on the Northern Irish economy be if there was suddenly a lot more trade restrictions between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So the DUP have made a lot of mistakes. In that sense, as I say, they also had a turnover of leadership and Arlene Foster was, it's a, it's a funny thing to say about her, but she genuinely was from the more moderate wing of the DUP, you know, this is, um, this is a party where a lot of people kind of um, think the dinosaurs never existed. It's that sort of, uh, that sort of a group of guys, um, have a lot of very, very, um, have a lot of views and a lot of issues that are quite out of touch with a lot of people. So the current leader, um, you know, has kind of made some mistakes, alienated some people in that way. But then on the Sinn Féin side of things, um, the way it's gone in Northern Ireland has been slightly different because Sinn Féin has been involved in the government of Northern Ireland for the last few years. So it's not as radical a change there. But yeah, one of the big issues was Brexit. But then, you know, there's also things like, you know, kind of cost of living crises, housing costs, things like that, all that sort of bread and butter stuff or um, kitchen table issues. That's a very big part of it too. That's more true in the 26 counties of the Republic of Ireland. Um, That's a big part of how Sinn Féin has done well there. But like in Northern Ireland, that is absolutely playing into it as well. And Sinn Féin are seen as being very much opposed to the government of the UK, the Conservative Party, which has been in power for quite some time. So, you know, there's sort of a bit of an opposition vote that's happening there as well.
2: Yeah. Talking to our buddy, Connor Duffy over in Ireland. Uh, we talk about changes in leadership. We got to talk about the generational change and really, you know, I don't know that you could overstate the passing of the torch here. The current leader of Sinn Féin, Mary Lou McDonald, uh, she replaced Jerry Adams and Jerry Adams is very familiar to the American audience. He was the guy in the suit with the beard who did a lot of fundraising in the eighties and nineties. Part of that was because he was banned from being on any media in the UK. (laughs) We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but Jerry Adams was very involved. Uh, there's been court cases, there's been accusations, there's been criminal complaint. He was very much in the IRA mold of the Sinn Fein as the political arm of the IRA. Mary Lou McDonald, the last 2018, uh, is it too much to say kind of the clean political new version of Sinn Fein you were talking about? This really does seem like that's a line of demarcation of when this really changed, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it really is because um, there wasn't. It wasn't just Gerry Adams. There was also Martin McGuinness, was the leader of Sinn Fein up in Northern Ireland, and he is no longer in charge now. He has actually died. But before he passed, there was also um, a change to Michelle O'Neill, who is the current leader of Sinn Fein up in Northern Ireland. Again, someone who was not involved in the troubles in any way. So, um, or well, <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure if that's certainly what's going out at the moment. Anyway, so. Mary Mood McDonald, uh, Michelle O'Neill, certainly not, they're not faces from the Troubles, um, not involved, as I said. Um, there's also, there was some other, say, politicians who were in Sinn Féin who have also retired, since retired who were from the Troubles generation. All of the faces from Sinn Féin that you see in the news here in Ireland these days, they're all fresh faces. They're people who are not involved. Um, in the IRA who were not involved in the period of time when um, the troubles were going on in Northern Ireland. And they are really trying to present themselves as, you know, this is a party that is, you know, materially different from the one that was the political wing of the IRA back in the 80s. They are still as committed to a united Ireland as they have ever been, but they have shifted. And it is, the, the IRA used to describe their tactics as An Armalite in one hand and the ballot box in the other. The the version of Sinn Féin we have now is committed to the ballot box for how it is going to achieve things. And this has been a long process of them trying to convince more and more people that they have in fact made this change. And a big part of how a lot of people are buying that is, as you say, passing of the torch. Jerry Adams is gone, Martin McGuinness is gone. People who are there in charge now, they're talking about other issues. They're not talking about, you know, trying to violently end the occupation of Northern Ireland. They're talking about, you know, issues of housing and healthcare, and, you know, coming to a united Ireland by a vote rather than some sort of military victory over the British. So that sort of shift has been a very big part of how Sinn Féin have become much more acceptable to a lot more people on both sides of the border here in Ireland.
2: Yeah. And just looking at their political platform, especially the most recent one that they did, it's a lot of boilerplate um, stuff, you know, abolishing the VAT and fuel and energy goods, something on everybody's mind with the economy, Mm -hmm. Uh, social and affordable home schemes that they're putting together. I'm using schemes there, by the way, in the version they use over yonder where it's not a bad thing. That's just what they call Mm -hmm. these things Uh, talking about. Should they have an all Ireland health service based off the NHS model? This, This is just kind of boilerplate populist politics kind of stuff for lack of a better term this seems like it would get you a lot farther at the ballot box and I think there's evidence now that says whatever they're doing it's working
5: oh I agree completely because that's why a lot of people are voting for them these days they're voting for them because they feel well Sinn Féin represents my views on these array of issues um, more than the other parties do or especially um, down here in the Republic of Ireland and the 26 counties you know it's sort of like These these other parties have been in charge for a very long time, there are problems with housing is a big one here in Ireland also problems with the health system and cost of living and stuff like that. And some people are like, well, you know, let's maybe it's time for a change of guard and Sinn Féin are the largest party that would potentially represent that change. Um, something to maybe appreciate here, too, is that part of why Sinn Féin became the largest party in Northern Ireland is also that there was a surge in support for this non-aligned party, the Alliance Party. And the Alliance Party don't consider themselves nationalists or unionists. Um, they're sort of a kind of middle ground liberal party, and a lot of support has gone to them. They actually gained more votes than anyone else this election. So... Sinn Féin becoming the largest party is also because a lot of people who maybe would have voted unionists before are now voting for this party that wants to talk about other things. So they're kind of benefiting from that change in the political landscape in two ways, because their opponents are losing votes to someone who wants to talk all about these sort of bread and butter stuff. But also they are gaining votes themselves personally, because they emphasize that more themselves these days as well.
2: Yeah, very interesting sea change going on. Uh, Our friend Connor (laughs) Duffy over in Ireland, we're going to continue to talk to him right after the break. We're going to get a little bit more into Ireland. Uh, Northern Ireland is becoming a mess. Uh, We need to talk about it. It came up in in the Queen's speech in Parliament down south. We'll talk about Northern Ireland, the future of Ireland. Is reunification now something more on the horizon? It's been talked about for 100-some years. Are they actually getting close to it? We'll talk about it with Connor Duffy when we return on Tell right after this. <music> ah, welcome back to tell We're talking Ireland with somebody that's actually in Ireland who happens to be Irish, not American Irish, where everybody claims to be so they can drink on St. Patrick's Day. He's actually Irish, Connor Duffy. You'll believe me as soon as he starts talking. All right. Uh, it came up in uh, all the policy around uh, the Queen's speech in Parliament, which was given by uh, Prince Charles. Unfortunately, obviously, the Queen is not in great health. Uh, there is a lot of talk that Northern Ireland has just basically, for lack of a better word, been neglected and forgotten for the last couple of months. I think that's a fair criticism of, frankly, both uh, the Conservatives and the Labour Party hasn't really covered themselves in glory either. I know there's a lot going on in the UK, Brexit, COVID, all this stuff. Northern Ireland is getting very messy and very loud, isn't it? Oh, absolutely.
5: And um, something that we need to say here as well is that Northern Ireland for a, very, for a lot of the time of the last few years, um, there actually hasn't even been a functioning assembly there. So there has been this impasse where the parties couldn't agree to work together. And so they also lacked a devolved government. So that is a large part of the frustration that's happening there too, is um, you've got this devolved power that isn't actually in place, isn't actually being used. Uh, To say that Northern Ireland has been neglected for the last few months is an understatement of the century. I would say Northern Ireland has been neglected for a very, very long time. Um, It has generally been something that I would say the UK political system, the political establishment in the UK have been happy to just sort of ignore since the Good Friday Agreement to a very large extent. And, um, you know, it was kind of when Brexit first happened, I would say that you had a lot of politicians in the UK once this Northern Irish border became a problem. They were kind of just learning about what Northern Ireland was like for the first time. You know, it was a place that had sort of been left to... um, left to neglect, as you say, for quite a long time. And so there are problems there. And um, that is, that is again, why people are going to start turning to parties that, you know, kind of are against the whole, who are against the prevailing people in power, against the system in general. And, you know, they want to have a change. And so, yeah, another factor in Sinn Féin's rise is that right there.
2: Um, the DUP, uh, which we already talked about, has been the dominant party. Uh, Still probably a little bit more powerful in Northern Ireland than larger Ireland now with the Sinn Fein stuff. They have vowed to block the formation of Northern Ireland's power sharing executive. Since this is kind of unique to Northern Ireland because of all the dynamics we talked to for an American audience that isn't used to things like that. What does that actually mean um, and how are they holding this up and what's the effect of that? Because we already said we've had gridlock here for the last couple of months badly, but really for the last few years and various itinerations. What does stopping the power sharing executive mean?
5: Yeah, so the power sharing is the system of government that has been in place in Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement. And what it essentially means is that you can't form a government in Ireland just in, sorry, you can in Ireland. You cannot form a government in Northern Ireland just with a majority of seats. That isn't how it works. You need to have parties that represent both the unionist side and the nationalist side of the um, political divide in Northern Ireland. So every party in Northern Ireland actually has to register itself as representing nationalists, as representing unionists, or as non-aligned. And so I mentioned the Alliance earlier, they are a good example of a party that calls themselves non-aligned or neither. So in order to have power sharing, you need to have representation your majority that you form the government with has to have representation from both the nationalist and the loyalist communities. And there's a whole bunch of issues in Northern Ireland where um, they can trigger what's called a petition of concern. And essentially what that means is that in order for uh, some piece of legislation to get through, you know, one of the parties says, this is of special interest to our community. You need to actually get majorities from both the nationalists and the loyalists in the assembly before that can go. So there's these checks that are in place that are essentially to prevent what happened for the majority of northern irish history which was that nationalists were systematically excluded from power and the loyalist majority or the unionist majority was able to just sort of impose things upon them without them having you know really any kind of democratic recourse so the power sharing as well as voting reform was put in to basically ensure that that couldn't happen but everything all the major decisions had to have input from both the Nationalists and the Unionists. Of course, what this means is that the largest party of the Nationalists or the Unionist side has an awful lot of power to prevent a government from being formed. So there isn't really a way forward in Northern Ireland without having the DUP agree that they want to form um, a power sharing executive. But for them to form a power sharing executive now, it would mean accepting the leader of Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, Michelle O'Neill, as the first minister, which is it is a, officially a shared post. There is the first minister and the deputy first minister, but in practice, we all the biggest party gets the first minister. That would be a hugely symbolic win for Sinn Féin. So the DUP, who have already not been keen on power sharing in recent years anyway, are you know threatening that you know they don't want any involvement with this. The leader of the dup may not even take his seat in the northern ireland assembly which is a, a whole other problem because he also has a seat in westminster right now so one of these little peculiarities of the system that emerge when you've got a devolved demol- administration and yeah the consequence of that would be again just no executive in northern ireland essentially no devolved government making decisions on um, the issues that people are caring about and um, what happens from then is either the UK takes direct control of what's happening in Northern Ireland or another round of elections and um you know I don't uh, who knows what would happen there but I doubt um I doubt we would see wildly different things because this is seems to be what people are expressing that they're happy with the people who are voting Sinn Féin are happy with Sinn Féin people who were previously voting for the unionist parties are turning away from them so that is that sort of the political landscape right now. and Without another power sharing executive, it's very likely that that could, that could only accelerate.
2: Yeah. Talking to our friend Connor Duffy over in Ireland. This quote grabbed my attention. I was reading through some of the Irish media. Um, Fenton O'Toole wrote it this way. He said, the old Northern Ireland is dead, but the new one cannot be born. Do You mm. think that's I, you can't get anything into one little soundbite, but that sure seems like it encapsulates a lot of this, doesn't it?
5: That's pretty good, yeah, because the old Northern Ireland, as I said, was a state, less a sort of region of the UK. that was more or less designed so that nationalists would never be in a majority, that they would never be deciding what happens in Northern Ireland. That clearly is just completely not true anymore. It was even actually acknowledged on the BBC. This was something that became quite, got spread around on um, Twitter and such quite a lot, That a presenter for the BBC just casually threw that line out there when he was explaining the results that oh Northern Ireland as a state was designed so that what's happening now would never happen. Um, So I I don't think there's any, um, I don't think there's a clear indication that that is the old Northern Ireland, is no longer the Northern Ireland that exists now. But as for whether the new Northern Ireland can come about, yeah you've got this gridlock between the parties, there is potentially not going to be a new administration. Because power sharing is the way Northern Ireland is run anyway, even if an executive was formed, it's actually unlikely that Sinn Féin's new position would lead to radically different um, sort of governance happening, since, as I say, they were previously the junior partner in power sharing, or this would be them shifting to senior partner. So, you know, you wouldn't expect radically different things to happen, but Kind of, as I say, symbolically, this is a huge thing. And it definitely does put the question of the United Ireland far more on the political agenda than it has been for a very long time.
2: One of those you mentioned Westminster and the peculiarities and how there's kind of this dual identity between Northern Ireland and Westminster, which is the UK Parliament, the mm-hmm. House of Commons. One of those longstanding peculiarities is Sinn Féin practice abstention, where they would be elected to Parliament, but would not serve. They would hold the title. Mm-hmm. They would hold all the rights, but they wouldn't actually show up in Parliament. Is that kind of the next step in normalization of Sinn Féin? Do you think that policy goes away and they see an opportunity here and start making their presence known?
5: I don't think they'll ever do that. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You think they're going to
2: hold on to that to the end? Mm,
5: Sinn Féin will never take their seats at Westminster. I would be shocked if they did.
2: (laughs) That is something
5: they care very, very much about. And it's something that people criticize an awful lot in recent years, actually. Because people said you guys have seats that you could take in Westminster that you could potentially use to influence how Brexit is going. Brexit was something that most people in Northern Ireland voted against, yet most people in the UK as a whole voted for. So it was kind of if there was an ever if there was ever an issue that would get Sinn Fein to take their seats in Westminster, that was it. And they didn't. And they every time they've been asked, they just don't even like hearing the question. They're like, We are perfectly clear we're never going to take the seats in Westminster.
2: So that's that's the one red line here that's never going to get crossed. Yeah, a red line
5: I don't think would ever get crossed. Now, let me see you go off like a bomb.
2: okay we're going to take a break from the news of the day and talk to one of our favorites she is a presidential historian we've had her on many times before she does these wonderful uh, threads and pieces on presidential history and we've got a good one here a little racy might need a little bit of parental discretion tipper gore and you folks like that the love lives of the president sarah Stook, our friend from over in the uk how are you ma'am
6: I'm very good. Thank you for having me on again. It's always very fun to do.
2: Fantastic. Uh, I told her if she came back on, I would dress up because she's big in the fashion. And then she busts out a t-shirt and pearls. That wasn't really fair, but that's okay. Uh, We will deal with it. She writes for The Mallard Over Yonder. She writes for Elections Daily here. uh, And we love talking to her. Okay. What got you on the Love Lives of the Presidents? You've been doing this First Lady series. Was that just kind of the natural crossover like well wait a minute there's obviously relationship stuff here well somebody tweeted about
6: about, tweeted about rating the presidents on horniness and somebody tagged me and said this is something that you should do and i said well that's a challenge accepted so i did it
2: i i don't know like normally if we're talking about the love life of a president or a leader in other parts of the world it usually means there's a scandal going on because you know nice safe relationships are boring we don't like talking about them But that's not really the case with the presidents. There's actually a lot of fascinating stuff, and there's a lot of relationships here that actually kind of affected the course of history in some cases, isn't it?
6: Well, like many men, they're men. That's it's it's the power thing you know a lot of pe- men and probably women in power do some very naughty things because they think they can get away with it and powers and aphrodisia it's the same throughout history and it will continue to be so so it's you know not really surprised that there's quite a few presidents who have a bit of a sketchy sort of libido let's call it that to be funny.
2: Yeah, we got to be FCC compliant here. So we're going to be using euphemisms a lot. Just prepare yourselves. Lots of double entendres on today's tell. Okay, let's start with the good news, though. Who are the good husbands? Who are the good presidents? They behave themselves. They love their wives. They raise their children, etc, etc. Let's start with the good ones, because I know everybody wants to get to the juicy stuff. But we had some very well behaved presidents, didn't we?
6: Well, this may be a surprise if you sort of know him well. But Andrew Jackson was an extremely, well, he wasn't Unfaithful, let's put it that way. He did truly love Rachel, he adored her, but he also did get into fights whenever her um, morality was questioned because they married vigorously because she wasn't divorced from her first husband as she thought she was. So she was, you know, slandered in the press. I mean, at the time, that was terrible, but he loved her. He did truly love her. He never remarried afterwards. He was during the Petticoat affair, he took sides with the Eatons because it was reminded of Rachel. So, you know, he was. Pretty interesting and a bit horrible in some respects, but his virtue was he did truly love Rachel, and I think that is very nice from a president now for his temper.
2: You put it in a humorous way that he liked his dueling pistols more than he liked women. Apparently,
6: yeah, I don't, there's no evidence of you any know, extramarital affairs or you know flings or anything. I think you know he was more interested in fighting than women.
2: All right. Let's talk about our first president, George Washington, because kind of interesting for those times he had, of course, Martha is famous. They really had, I I hate, this sounds like I'm I'm knocking them, but I'm not. I mean, this is a compliment. They really had a business partnership, didn't they?
6: I mean, back in those days in the late 1700s, you didn't really marry for love. It was a bonus. You know, you would especially among the upper classes I mean in, in, the, in Britain and continental Europe you know you would still had the um, arranged marriages, which weren't really as much of a thing in America but you know it was a business partnership. She was a widow, she needed someone to help raise her remaining children. he needed a leg up and she was absolutely loaded. So they thought, okay, this is a good marriage. They did, it wasn't a passionate relationship and they probably weren't in love. But they loved each other. She was a very good wife. She wasn't some pampered plantation wife. She got her hands dirty. They were both you know, very good together. And you know, I think she was a fantastic first lady in that respect. When he was out during the Revolutionary War, she would come out with him, help with the soldiers. She was sort of the perfect wife. He, he wouldn't have gone for some pampered, sort of more of a housewife kind of thing. I think he wanted somebody who would be in the trenches with him. And that's what he got with Martha. And I think that was a very perfect match for them.
2: All right. Very controversial president when it comes to his personal relationships. I don't want to rehash the whole thing because we, we all kind of know where it goes. But uh, Jefferson, uh, we know the Sally Hastings stuff. We know uh, his wife died. But there is background on that about his wife died and promises made there, isn't there?
6: Well, she had very poor relationships with her stepmother. She had quite a fear, because her mother dad when she was quite young. And she said, never remarry. And Thomas Jefferson said sure. Obviously he sort of got around that by raping his underage slave, who was his wife's half sister. But, you know, he didn't remarry, but still it's not exactly you know scandalous in this sense of extramarital affairs. It's more, you know, very extremely morally questionable.
2: Yeah, you almost need a flow chart for that one, don't you, where it all gets entangled? Yeah. Unbelievable. Okay, among kind of, let's let's say the founding fathers, the early presidents, the first five or six presidents we had, who else had a notable relationship either with their wife or with somebody that wasn't their wife that maybe they shouldn't have been having?
6: You know, sort of up until, apart from Jefferson, up until like Jackson, they had they were very, you know, very faithful men. Uh, John Adams, Abigail Adams had a nice famous loving relationship. He, when he was in France, he was told that she'd have a mistress and he said, Now I've got Abigail, which is you know very sweet. And they had a very long marriage of 50 years, very much in love, very intellectually matched. Um, Madison had Dolly. This again was a business arrangement because she was a poor widow and he needed a wife, but again, they cared for each other and she was a brilliant hostess. Um, James Monroe and Elizabeth Courtright, another one, John and Louisa Adams. So, yeah, they were pretty morally upright, faithful to the wives sort of no rumors of affairs or raping slaves. So tick, tick, tick all around there.
2: <laughs> Talking to Sarah Stuck, our presidential historian friend over in the UK. Uh, OK, here's one, because he is universally known as one of the worst presidents we've ever had. Very good chance he may have had the worst love life of any president we ever had. James Buchanan.
6: Well, common historical censors today believe he might have been at least bisexual or homosexual. We will probably never know because that kind of thing was well, it was illegal at the time. So he's not going to shout about it, is he? But some historians say he wasn't interested in romances. He was engaged. She did kill herself. And it's very murky of the reasons why she did that. But he didn't really seem to have a lot of interest in sex. He could have been perhaps asexual. He even wrote, if I ever marry, she'll have to understand I'm not an affectionate person. So that's pretty interesting that he had no interest in marriage and love. He even told his niece, Harriet, who was his hostess, don't marry quickly. And she waited until she was 36, which at the time was very, very late. Especially since she got a lot of proposals for being very young and pretty.
2: Mm. And his contemporary uh, Franklin Pierce, he doesn't get talked about. And pre- by the way, it's no accident that we had a couple of our worst presidents leading up to the Civil War. Those two <laughs> things go together. Franklin Pierce is so interesting. People never talk about him. He is ranked usually as one of the most handsome presidents. But this guy's life, his personal life, not just his presidency, just tragedy on tragedy on tragedy. He He's really an interesting case, isn't he?
6: he was you know really tragic he lost he had several sons three of whom died before he reached the presidency on the way to the inauguration there was a accident on the train and his son was basically beheaded before their eyes the last remaining child Benny, jane pierce was already very sort of mentally unstable as it was and this sort of pushed her over the edge which you could imagine it would do to anybody's so very sad for jane franklin turned to alcohol, so he did you know very devoted to his wife again no rumors of affairs but sad really isn't it
2: you think about can you imagine the press of something today like the president the president elect's child getting killed on the way to the inauguration that'd be the biggest story of the century
6: and he and he had he was the only casualty there was nobody else it just happened to be that poor lad because he was looking out the window and it was just unfortunate position and timing
2: Jeez, terrible uh, Sarah stuck with us okay this gets us to the guy that had to clean up the mess of all those bad presidents he also had a pretty sloppy ugly very contentious personal life we know Abraham Lincoln as one of the great men in history we know him as one of our greatest presidents if not the greatest I have him as the greatest a lot of other people do too how was his love life he was a tall man he was a very athletic man in his youth he had a reputation for winning fights and wrestling contests big strap and lad not great looking What was his reputation uh as a man of love?
6: Well, he apparently visited prostitutes, but this was before he got married. So we'll give him tick for not being a cheater. So, but again, you know, obviously prostitution, very questionable morality among what people think, but so you can sort of add that as the interesting column. But with Mary, it was very initially happy, but she was very mentally unwell, last she had a Historians say she might have had bipolar, but so you can't really diagnose it hundreds of years later. You know, he, she mentally and physically, it's believed she did abuse him. Maybe not, maybe it was because of her mental illness, but she wasn't well. They suffered a lot of tragedy to the point where he said, I'll put you in a mental institution if you don't shape up a bit. So while they did love each other and she it was initially very happy the relationship was very fraught she had family fighting in the confederacy she nearly died in a carriage accident that was meant for him so his personal life especially during the civil war was a mess you can't believe that somebody could go through all that and still sort of make out relatively okay until he got yeah. shot of us
2: it's amazing with lincoln because it wasn't just the country was falling apart his personal life was falling apart at the same time and he still managed to come through all that it just it's one of the reasons that makes him great Is all those personalities all right the man that is always in history going to be attached with lincoln to the hip ulysses s grant we talked about this when we talked about the first ladies a little bit but i think it's worth bringing up again grant had a reputation of being an alcoholic during the civil war lincoln famously quoted find out what what he drinks i'll send it to all my other generals at least he fights but um other historians i know shelby Foote wrote about this especially he only drank when his wife wasn't around so if he's only drinking when his wife ain't around, obviously he must love his wife, and even though it's kind of a twisted, unhealthy way, how was that relationship?
6: Well, you know, there's, they had family problems in that their respective families didn't like their choice of spouse. He was from a deeply religious, abolitionist household. They were wealthy slaveholders. Her father didn't have a problem with you as a person, but he just thought, you know, Don't think you're going to have a good life plus your family. But, you know, there's no evidence they were ever on. Un- particularly unhappy. Obviously, they were a parcel due to his work, which unfortunately comes to the territory of military, especially when you're in a time where you can't really get into contact too easily. But there's no indication that were ever particularly unhappy. It seems OK. And like I said, he didn't drink when his wife was around. Maybe it's because she told him off or maybe because he just missed her. We'll sort of never know. But pretty stable, pretty good relationship. She was a pretty cool woman. So... Yeah, no
2: problems there. Yeah, quite the socialite after the White House, too, had a lot of connections. Uh, talking to Sarah Stook, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to move into the modern era a little bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. When we come back, we'll move into the modern era a little bit. We'll do some quick hit stuff. Who was the most handsome presidents? Who's the ones with the best love life? Who were the downright creeps? We've had a couple of them. A couple of our modern presidents, too, have some interesting history to them. Sarah Stook, our presidential historian friend, continues with us on her tell right after this. See you go off like a bomb back to Hurtel. Uh Sarah Stook again joining us. Okay, we talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of some of our earlier presidents. We've had some downright creeps. Um, creep's the only word for it. What was some of the ones that really stuck out to you of just like egads, this person probably should have went to prison?
6: Well Grover Cleveland's apparent love child was apparently conceived by rape. Obviously, no, it's never been proven. This was on the word of the woman who bought the child, though there was never any concrete evidence that it was his child. So, yeah, should have been in prison there. He just said I was doing it to protect my married friends and the other one's not married, so I'd take paternity. But if it's to re her, and he did marry a girl he'd raised since childhood. So, yeah, Grover Cleveland was very creepy.
2: Uh, I also add to the list from the thread you did on Twitter about this. Uh, Warren G. Harding, that dude had a couple screws loose when you started looking at his love life, didn't he?
6: Historians, some believe that Florence, his wife, poisoned him as revenge for his affairs. And I'm not condoning that, but when you read about it, you can kind of see why people think that. She was a really incredible woman. If you read my last Ask on First Ladies, she was absolutely amazing. And she just thought of as the woman who probably killed her husband. But yeah, he, he had sex in coat closets. He had met furs. He had a baby out of wedlock, which was proven with DNA years later. He was a scoundrel, but it was kept quiet and he was super popular until he died. And everyone realized what a horrible, corrupt person he was, both morally and as president.
2: And just to be clear, we're talking about the cloak closet in the White House, not just like a random one somewhere. And he also nicknamed his manhood, which we won't get into, but that's just the kind of guy you're dealing with. Did the Secret Service really pick up the tab for his child support?
6: Well, they took the child support to the woman. So whether or not they actually picked up the bill, but they did take it. They were the go-between.
2: Unbelievable. Okay, Uh, let's switch gears for a second. Who was very well-behaved, maybe too well-behaved, as some of our more modern presidents go? Who really towed the line and behaved themselves?
6: I think when we sort of look back you no know, recently, Obama, you know, there's no whiff of adultery or anything. He met his wife in his 30s, so obviously, you know, he well late 20s, early 30s. So, you know, he had girlfriends before, nothing improper. Seems very devoted to Michelle. They seem like a very great partnership. And I feel like she would. Repent to him if he did anything she seems like a very tough cookie good for her so obama um both bushes there are rumors of affairs i take it with, with a pinch of salt but they both seem very devoted to their wives which i think you know that kind of old family values kind of like the adams i feel they probably had
2: yeah two presidents who were very very well respected but both had affairs you just mentioned Bush the elder had uh, a woman who was his aide that kind of um, there's a lot of evidence now that he made sure she traveled with him. at a lot of times there's obviously a fair there now. He obviously loved his wife very much by the end, but there was an affair there. But Dwight D. Eisenhower, um, long running affair with the woman who was his aide and driver at one point. There's even some evidence that he wanted to get a divorce and the higher ups in the in the military and the government just wouldn't allow him to do it. Kind of surprising two folks that are very universally respected, but they had long-term affairs.
6: Again, you know, you can get people who are very morally good, but have, you know, weaknesses, whether it be adultery or alcohol or drugs or anything like that. Um, Eisenhower was separated from his wife for very long. That's no excuse for adultery, but it gives him the option. And yeah, he was... It's never been proven, but it's, you know, it's pretty another likely scenario that he was having an affair with Summers-B. he was Summersby, who was a lot younger, very pretty, probably very exciting for him. And it was as he wanted to divorce, mainly but the higher-ups in the military said, that will kill your career. We will kill your career if you get a divorce. But, you know, a high-ranking official divorcing his wife with a much younger woman. You could have affairs, but you couldn't divorce. That was sort of the red line there. So he sort of had to toe... But I'm, they seem to have quite a good relationship, him and Mamie. But still, you know, a military man away for a long time. You can kind of see that coming from a mile away.
2: Yeah. Okay. The two that are on the top of the mountain of Randy presidents, and we had them back to back. Uh, let's start with JFK. It is pretty legendary at this point. It was well hidden by a very helpful press who managed to not want to talk about it for some odd reason. I guess they didn't like money. Or attention or press, uh, JFK was just on a whole nother level when it came to being a womanizing president, wasn't he?
6: Well, I have my Jackie shirt on today, funnily enough, but because I feel deeply sorry for my very favorite first lady, but he was like that from an early age. His father encouraged his sons to be terrible, to be with prostitutes, to be with married women, while his daughters were meant to be chaste and virtuous. If you look at Rose lobotomized probably because she liked to flirt which apparently was not acceptable for a young Kennedy lady but you know Kennedy he shared um, a mistress with his father Gloria Swanson maybe Marlon Dietrich he had an affair with a Russian spy which got him into a wee bit of trouble he nearly um dunked Jackie about a few days before the wedding because he met this Swedish woman he took a girl's virginity in his wife's bed in the White House his wife's in fra- um was taking a tour guide around a reporter and a friend said, that's the woman my husband's apparently been doing. So she was definitely aware. She did nearly divorce him, apparently. Originally, she was okay. And she said, well, my father didn't. She loved her father very much. It's what men do. But when she realised the extent Joe Kennedy had to say, I will pay you to not, because that will just ruin, as a Catholic and as a senator, ruin his chances. But yeah, he was, you know, until the very end, he was... Very unrepentant. Their relationship did sort of go a bit better when their son Patrick died, but that was obviously a few months before he was assassinated. But yeah, he was he likes women. Let's just put it that way. He only got married because there was rumors he was gay. That was it. He otherwise he probably wouldn't have bothered.
2: <laughs> what a world. All right. His replacement. Um, I've told people uh lately when we were going through the Trump years and people were talking about, oh, Trump's so vulgar. I'm like, no, he he's a piker. You need to read up on LBJ. I don't know that we've had a more vulgar man ever in the White House. He was very proud about it. He was not subtle about it. He was loud. He was in charge. And he had a love life to match it, didn't he?
6: Well, he nicknamed his appendage Jumbo, which was apparently deserved. That's what what that we say, the better. He had a long affair with um, another senator, with his secretary. His wife probably knew. He did love his wife, but he was pretty emotionally cruel to her, t- calling her fat and ugly even though she bankrolled his campaign so grateful there but yeah he had no calms about nudity about telling people when he was on the toilet, yeah I'm ringing you from the toilet he was just yeah very vulgar, brash, typical Texan so while JFK was sort of a smooth New England adulterer LBJ was proud
2: <laughs> um, Coming to the modern era to put a bow on this with our friend Sarah Stoker real quick uh, it's unavoidable to talk about, but the most recent uh, scandalous of the president's, uh, William Jefferson Clinton. Uh, we talked about the cloakroom and Harding. We all we all know about Monica and the Oval Office. I lived through it the first time. I really don't want to talk about it again, but uh, slick Willie. We called him that for a reason. Long list of not only affairs, but other uh, accusations of mistreatment of women as well. If that if he's in the social media age, does it, any of these guys, you could say this, but especially Clinton, how much did he luck out that the internet was just right after his presidency and not before?
6: Well, it was the Drudge Report that broke the story. I think it was the Washington Post, and we'll leave it alone. And Matt yes, Drudge it broke it on on the internet as the internet was coming into its yep. infancy. So he was lucky; it wasn't more developed. Let's just say that you know. Nowadays, you know, back then you had people like Glory Stein and basically calling Monica Lewinsky a slut and saying he was just trying to be friendly. But he had an affair with a woman young enough to be his daughter in the White House, which it's not illegal, but it's very morally questionable. He's he's the president. He's her boss. I'm not saying she was completely innocent. She was a willing party, as it were. But... Yeah, it's very morally questionable. Well, he had to have a Fed and rape allegations, which is obviously even worse. I think nowadays people are picking up on it and people are starting to sort of question his legacy. He's a very popular president. He still remains because he was over a pretty, you know, good age of politics. So, yeah, and Hillary stuck by him. Obviously, I think she was in a, as much as I despise her, it's a catch 22, she leaves him it makes her look like she's quitting if she stays with him the feminists are angry so yeah she had no real choice in that and chelsea clinton was as much a victim of any of it She only yeah. teenage now let me see you go oh like a bomb. <laughs>
2: Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. He's one of our favorites. He's been on here multiple times before. I still have to practice saying his name, James Arnowski. We love him to death. He's great on stuff like tech, on regulations, on big tech, and why it is and is not scary stuff. James, how are you today, my friend?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
2: I uh, love having you back. Okay. Uh, almost all the tech stuff has been relegated to the back page because uh, this guy named Elon Musk, you might have heard of him, uh, is trying to take over Twitter. Um, give me the sales pitch on it before we get into this. Give me the good and the bad of it, because you actually know the technical side of this stuff. You know the regulatory side of this stuff, the stuff that's going on in Congress. What? Turn the noise down for me. Give me the good and the bad of this story. Let's assume if Elon Musk is able to take over Twitter.
0: Sure. So Elon Musk officially put out a bid to buy Twitter for $43 billion. Um, This was because he felt that Twitter was not a viable option to be profitable and do well uh, if he had just stayed at the position that he was at, where he could have had a seat on the board and tried to change the company that way. He felt like that there were too many big changes that were needed with the company. So he felt like the only way to really go and put Twitter at its best position was if he completely bought it out and took it private uh, so he put the offer at $54.20 a share, uh, nice little subtle 420 reference because of typical Elon fashion. Uh, so that's that's more or less the, the broad strokes of what happened here. Uh, originally, the board did try to resist the buyout from, from Elon by putting a poison pill into effect. But once Elon Musk had announced that he had secured the funding, so basically being able to put the money where his mouth was. Uh, It made it very difficult for the board to resist accepting the offer because I think the reality was that they couldn't really find anybody that could go and match or beat his offer to be their white knight uh, or to come up with some other strategy that could justify to shareholders why they would turn down an offer uh, that benefits the shareholders because of their fiduciary responsibilities. So Elon's going to go and take over Twitter, assuming you you cross the T's and dot the I's and everything's fine from a regulatory perspective with the FTC reviewing the deal. Uh, And now really the question is, is what is Elon Musk's Twitter look like? And I think that while he has certainly offered some glimpses as to what he thinks uh, Elon Twitter would look like, uh, that's a lot different when you're an armchair CEO versus an actual CEO of a company. So I think that he's got a, a lot to figure out in this space and it'll be interesting to see out of everything that he has pontificated on, what becomes a reality versus what becomes just, you know, wordplay.
2: Yeah. And one of the reasons everybody wants to talk about the content side of this. And I get that because that's what we use. It's a user platform. Let's take a second though, and talk about the business side of this real quick though, because that's the part that actually really matters here. One of the reasons the board felt they had to take this offer is because this is an insane amount of money for the platform. When you look at its actual value. Now this is all stock. This is all projected. We understand how those things work. But the thing about Twitter is unlike Facebook, unlike Um, Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and other platforms like that, Twitter doesn't make a lot of money. And I know everybody's seeing that 44 billion, but as a business, Twitter has not worked as a business for quite some time, at least in the realm you would think it would with the amount of outside influence it has. So when they started seeing those dollar signs, that's kind of what really pushed this forward as much as anything Musk was doing, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I think that that's one of the underappreciated factors of the story. And that's something that I certainly hark on in in numerous media interviews that I've done on the subject is that Twitter was not and you you can only afford to be what you can afford to be. Right. Twitter could not afford to be a company that was extolling the virtues that it was. When the company did not have healthy profit margins, it was having inconsistent revenue. Uh, It was having a hard time monetizing the users that they had in the same way that we've seen other big tech, if you will, uh, platforms be able to do this. So, you know, it it did make it very difficult for the board to justify to shareholders that they were going to reject Elon Musk how they were going to go and produce similar, if not more, value to the shareholders than that buyout offer from Elon Musk to go private. So I think that there's a lot of uh, factors that ultimately led to it. But certainly because of the fact that Twitter was probably one of the more unsuccessful companies in terms of its ability to become profitable and viable on its own, that led to the opportunity for the company to get bought out.
2: Now, because you study this stuff and you cover it and you know a lot more about it than I do. Explain this to me like I'm five. There's still a regulatory review process here. This is I I know they've agreed to it, but still on paper, this is a hostile takeover. That's a very highly regulated thing. There's a lot of rules involved on that. There has to be, you know, there's got to be third party financing that has to be verified by another third party. Just real quick, talk to people because I know everybody's acting like Elon's in charge already. He's not. This is going to take at least a couple months, probably at least into the winter, to get all this done. Just talk about that process real quick because you do understand the regulatory side of these things when it comes to these big tech companies. Yeah.
0: So I think that it's, uh, I think that the hostile takeover portion actually got removed when Elon changed his offer uh, a little bit to account for some things. So I don't think it's technically considered a hostile takeover anymore. It's just a proper buyout. Uh, you know, offer that was accepted by the company. Uh, So I think that now basically the big hurdle that remains is for the FTC to decide whether or not they're going to uh, weigh in and try to block this merger from going through for some reason. But like you mentioned, yes, there has to be uh, verification of assets. There has to be, you know, proof that people have the money they say that they're going to have. In terms of buying out the company, there's also how many shareholders are going to accept that buyout offer or try to retain their shares in the company when it goes private in Elon's fashion. So particularly with that example, there was a Saudi prince that had a pretty sizable stake in Twitter that rejected his 5420 offer, thinking that there was more value to Twitter than that. Now, given where the current price of Twitter is on the stock market, it seems like shareholders disagree with the prince from Saudi, uh, unsurprisingly. So uh, what's happening now is that it actually saved uh, Elon Musk over a billion dollars not having to go and pay this guy out uh, up front, right? So there's a lot of moving parts. But basically, like you said, there has to be verification of the money. The FTC has to decide whether or not they're going to try to block this from happening on antitrust grounds, potentially, which... The Open Markets Institute uh, sent a letter to Chairman Khan, uh, Chairwoman Khan rather to go and say that there is justification for preventing this merger, underneath the guise of uh, old rules that govern this space. Uh, I'm not entirely sure whether that bid will be successful or whether or not Chairwoman Khan will actually step in to try to prevent this from occurring. but. Uh, assuming that all that goes through, like you said, it's not like Elon Musk is in charge of Twitter right this second. This is this is literally going to take multiple months for all of it to get ironed out if it's, if it's successfully acquired, which is why whenever Elon's tweeting about what he would do in Elon Twitter, it's always if the sale is approved, right? Uh, so we have to get to that point, and then we can go and talk about it. But the funny thing, like you mentioned, is that people are treating it like Elon is – owning Twitter right now. The placebo effect of it has been quite humorous to look at because you have conservatives saying, oh, we got more followers. We got more reach. You have liberals claiming that there's you know, more uh, hate speech and, and whatever. But the reality is that Twitter has been Twitter this whole time. And as a matter of fact, because of the fact that they're in this process of getting bought out, they can't really do anything to change the product drastically because of the fact that that could impact their sale.
2: Yeah. And let's we're going to we're going to talk about that portion of it, how everybody's avatar Elon Musk all of a sudden. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's stick to the business side of this for just a second, though, because um, let me be the skeptic for a minute because I do this. I've been accused of being skeptical from time to time from by you and other folks. Uh, Not too long ago, 2018, Musk got himself in trouble on Twitter because he talked about taking Tesla private. And that cost him a nice $20 million fine. Tesla had to pay a $20 million fine. He had to step down as chairman of Tesla for at least five years. This is all the same people that are going to be doing some of the regulatory oversight of this deal. Normally in a deal, when you do this, everybody gets quiet until the deal's done. Now, I know Elon Musk is his own beast. I know he's a big celebrity. He's gone the other way. He's getting louder and louder and louder about all this that's that's kind of a red flag to me of are we actually going to get there now i know i'm in the minority opinion here but just play along for a second he does little things like the 420 stock price he does little things like his latest tweet about they're going to have 69 million users that's not accidental elon musk does this stuff all the time that's not an accidental number um he gets louder and louder and louder about this he's already gotten in trouble with his tweeting before Am I wrong to have at least a little skepticism of, hey, this thing ain't done yet. And Elon Musk is pretty much a live wire that does what he wants and does not think things through like complicated business deals sometimes?
0: No, I think it's perfectly healthy to have a decent bit of skepticism that the deal gets done. Uh, because it ain't over until everything's signed and approved by all the right parties. So I don't think that it's unreasonable to be skeptical, especially with Elon's history with uh, tweeting. Now, he has been overly critical of the SEC's department, particularly that's located in San Francisco. They think that he's being targeted. And then with the DOJ and some other folks investigating Tesla more broadly, uh, there certainly is cause for him to believe that he is being targeted because of his heterodox thinking. That is just his opinion on the matter. But I think that, again, when we're looking at uh, Elon and, and his different tweets, it presents a unique problem because normally, like you said, these deals go through. Everybody stays quiet. They just want to get it done and over with. But Elon's you know, putting his thoughts out there uh, very openly and it could cause different problems. But that being said, None of it technically violates the term sheet that they signed for him to purchase Twitter. He can talk about Twitter and like what he would like to do underneath Musk Twitter, but he can't go and sit there and talk about the deal uh, in any kind of um, you know negative light or anything like that, because then that would be violating the, the actual terms of the agreement that he signed. Uh, with Twitter and he'd pay like a $1 billion uh, breakup fee uh, for not doing the following through with this transaction. So there's plenty of incentive for Elon to watch what he's saying if he genuinely does want this to go through. Um, And also it is worth noting that it's not like he has to put up the $43 billion anymore uh, because originally it was just going to be him half all the way through trying to do it through Tesla stock. But now he has half of it done through banks, and he has other people that are electing to go and stay as shareholders in the new Musk Twitter. So there's lots of ways in which that he's mitigated some of the risk against himself.
2: Yeah, talking to our friend James Renowski, uh Young Voices contributor, really smart guy when it comes to this tech stuff. We're going to take a quick break. We come back on Herd Tell. We're going to continue to talk about Elon Musk. We're going to talk about the free speech aspect of this. We're going to get into the content of Twitter, something James has done a lot. James has done a lot of media on both sides of the spectrum. I'm going to ask him about how some of the reaction has gone because he's got it from both ends uh, in a couple of different places. More with our buddy James on Hurtel right after this.
0: Now, let me see you go like a bomb.
2: Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Continuing with our friend James Arnowski, great guy, really smart guy on this stuff. Make sure you're following him. You'll see his Twitter handle on the bottom third graphic right there. Good guy. always enjoy talking to him. Okay, I want to ask you this before we get into the content stuff. Everybody's got an opinion on this. You've done both uh, progressive and liberal media outlets. You've done conservative outlets. You're a good guy to ask about this because I've caught your interviews from both sides of the aisle on this thing. What's your read on how much this thing has become an avatar for people? Because, man, people sure got convinced in a hurry that Elon Musk was this, that, or the other just based off of this. I find it fascinating. But you've been out there. You've been doing these interviews. What's your feel of that? Because this really does seem like it's become a funnel for some of the ongoing cultural war stuff, hadn't it?
0: Well, I mean, that's no lie that Elon decided to buy Twitter in part because of his feelings about the current state of culture in the United States surrounding free speech, uh, unironically, Elon Musk, like many uh, folks that we've heard in recent days, claims to be a uh, free speech absolutist, if you will. But then it's, there's always some kind of uh, articulation as to not being free speech absolutist that I find that typically follows that. Um, when, when we're talking about, you know, how this has been politicized very uh, virulently by either side of the aisle, it's not surprising um especially given musk's rhetoric and how he operates to our point when we were going before the break talking about musk and his tweeting getting in in trouble um you know that has certainly inflamed those that are on the liberal and progressive side of the spectrum because they see a guy who is insensitive to potential you know speech that could be deemed uh hurtful and harmful something that we might not find particularly nice to see on the internet more broadly speaking That being said, on the flip side of the aisle, conservatives see this as like, you know, a a good opportunity to try and rebalance the scales. Conservatives for the past several years have felt like big tech has been targeting them, right or wrong. That's how they feel. And they think that Elon Musk and his version of Twitter, which is supposed to be more free speech friendly, is is a potential solution that might offer more avenues for free speech. Uh, for conservatives on this subject matter altogether. So I think the reality is, is that both sides are probably overreacting to the news of Elon Musk buying Twitter. I don't think that Twitter is going to be radically shifted in a direction that either side of the aisle is going to particularly like. Um, You know, so I think that there's going to be some form of medium where some things on the margin are going to change. And we'll have to see how other things go in practice, because again, he's been very... uh, You know, opinionated about stating that he does not want to go and permanently ban people. So this is a reference to Donald Trump. He has already announced that if he gets the sale approved, that he's going to go and uh, restore Donald Trump's account to Twitter. Whether or not Donald Trump chooses to use that remains to be seen. He has truth social that he's using uh, a little bit more now. So we'll have to just continue to monitor that. But I think that it's more about just seeing how the things lay out. Because it's one thing to be able to say all this stuff right now where none of the responsibility or accountability is on you right this second. It's another thing to go and do it once you're actually in control and you are actually responsible for making this company that has been struggling profitable. That's the number one concern I think that has to be there for Musk is how to make Twitter profitable for him. Because That $43 billion represents 20% of Elon's wealth as an individual. So it's not an unsizable investment for him.
2: Yeah, and the Tesla folks are pretty openly nervous about this thing. If you get below the headlines and start reading into the stockholder stuff, I'm talking about the real money people, not the fans. They've got questions about this because this is a big chunk of money going uh, in a different direction. Let me just put it to you directly then. I keep getting told on my social media that Elon Musk is a quote-unquote free speech absolutist. Is there evidence of that, though? Because I've seen some troubling things out of Elon Musk when it comes to things like free speech. And I'm not saying that he's not against it in principle, but in actions and practicalities, there's been a few things over the years that I've kind of went, "Mm, I'm not sure about that guy. Is his actions matching the rhetoric that people are putting on him that he's going to be this great champion of freedom of speech?
0: Yeah, I think that that's the interesting thing. Uh, Like I said, a lot of folks like to claim that they are free speech absolutists. And then there's usually always a caveat that follows that up. So Elon Musk claims to be a free speech absolutist, but he has had incidents over the years where, uh, for example, I know that there was an employee of Tesla that was going and showing the auto uh, drive functions uh, of his Tesla vehicles, got into an accident and was criticizing the company uh, for that. And that employee got fired. He tried going and gagging it. There was a Twitter account that was uh, actively tracking all the flights that Elon Musk was doing to see where he was at. Elon Musk tried gagging that too by buying the person out and then trying to sue to get the account taken down uh, because he thought that it was a violation of his privacy. So there's there's lots of ways in which Elon Musk's adherence to free speech principles doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, line up with what the actual ideal is supposed to be. But to be honest, that's, that's, any human. Like, I, I find it hard to believe that you'll find a true free speech absolutist anywhere. I think that there's always the caveat of people saying free speech uh, and being pro free speech is usually I like, you know, things that I like and not things that I don't like. Uh, they want to see less of those kinds of things. Uh, President Barack Obama did a talk at Stanford where he also invoked being a free speech uh, absolutist and then went on to go and talk about misinformation and disinformation and why he. You know, we need to go and crack down on that. So even though misinformation is still protected speech. So there's there's lots of ways in which I think people uh, like to go and invoke that language because there is a certain tenor about it that is, uh, I think, reminiscent of patriotism and and the history of America and our founding principles, obviously. But in terms of people ever living up to it wholeheartedly, no one's ever going to do that. So it's not surprising to me that Elon Musk is not like this, you know, free speech absolutist in practice that he likes to claim that he is.
2: Yeah, I, there's a couple of reporters that would uh, disagree with President Obama, but let's not rehash all that today. <laughs> um, I think Elon is giving us that very caveat going through his tweets. Um, he recently on uh, May the 9th, which was just a couple of days ago, as we sit and record this, he got into a conversation with Sernovic of all people, which somebody who loves him needs to get a hold of him and be like, quit tweeting with certain people. And that's one of them. But that's neither here nor there. And talking about left wing bias. And he straight up says that Twitter obviously has a left wing bias. But then he tweeted this I'm going to quote it because I found it very interesting and it piqued my ears up. He said, like I said, my preference is to hue close to the laws of countries in which Twitter operates. If the citizens want something banned, then pass a law to do so. Otherwise, it should be allowed. And the reason that caught my attention is on the surface, that's pretty standard tech bro speech for, you know, especially with the EU and some of the restrictions over there. Elon Musk has a lot of money riding on China. China, if you're going to apply that to China, that means you're going to follow their rules, which are very restrictive. I don't see him criticizing China the way he's criticizing America and the situation in Ukraine and the EU, which he has had a long-running battle with on a couple different levels. That shows up as a red flag to me. How does it feel to you?
0: Yeah, you're not the first person to obviously point out that China ties. I think that... Uh, There's like with any of the American companies that have operations and interests tied with China, that it's not surprising that perhaps you take a little bit more cautious of a tone uh, when even thinking about entering the realm of of the Asia markets. Uh, So it's not surprising that, uh, you know, maybe he's a little bit more careful since a lot of the uh, I I believe it's his batteries for the Teslas that get produced over there in China. Um, So there's definitely, I think, a valid concern there to, you know, Vet out. We'll have to see how that is. But even within that statement, right, like it actually goes in then goes when cuts against his exact point of being a free speech absolutist insofar as that if you're talking about this in the American context, uh, you know, one would think that you'd want to apply this across the board, no matter where you operate. But then you're acquiescing to the localities, which there are a lot of localities that have a lot more restrictive speech laws on the books than, you know, might be ideal by American values. Um, so I think that that's actually something that's a little self-defeating. So the EU commissioner, uh, was actually just at his Tesla plant in Austin, Texas, and then posted a video with him, uh, and then tried to basically insinuate that Elon more or less endorsed the DSA, the digital services act, uh, European tech regulation of social media, um, and the internet more broadly speaking. And I think that that's actually a horrible thing uh, that the EU commissioner did that only because Elon doesn't own Twitter yet. and he, Elon is not a politician. The man does not think about any of that kind of stuff. And I think like if we said, hey, we want to go and crack down on, uh, you know, uh, hateful speech or like whatever, there's certain broad stroke things that I think people can broadly agree to. But then like anything else, the devil's in the details. Um, so that's that that kind of stuff, I think, is definitely worth having a closer examination at. And it was just completely inappropriate in my view, at least. For the EU commissioner to go and leverage Elon in that kind of a position, because what's he going to say? Like, especially because he has those vested interests in Europe. Um, I think that at the end of the day, there's there's a lot of balancing parts that have to get you know taken into account, and we'll have to see because again, this is going to be the actual test: is how how is this actually going to be applied in practice across markets that have different kinds of speech rules?
2: Yeah, is uh, the commissioner's theory Brenton. And Elon actually tweeted the video, retweeted the video that that man put out and then said, great meeting. We were on the exact same page underneath it. Uh, we're going to have to keep a close eye on that one going forward. All right. Since you brought it up, uh, let me just go there with it. We just talked to our friends in the UK about this a couple of days ago. Let's take something like the UK where like, you know, whenever I do an interview, the FCC, because this goes out on radio, I have to tell my guests, hey, we got to be FCC compliant. Don't curse on the air if you can help it. Right. Well, if you go over to the UK, you can curse on the air. But you don't have the libel law protections in the U.K. that I have on this program where I can say things about certain people and I have legal protections. How's stuff like that going to play with something like Twitter where we've seen things like in the U.K. where the tabloids and others have wound up in court over uh, libel laws, slander laws over what we call pretty run of the mill uh, statements? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think that, again, this is where people don't realize just how permissive our, our speeches is on Twitter and Facebook and a lot of these platforms. You can complain about their decisions that they make, and there certainly is some you know uh, veracity to wanting to complain about how they are making some decisions sometimes. But I think that at the end of the day, we are still far more permissive on our platforms in the United States than anywhere else in the world, bar none. No one comes even remotely close. So with the UK, they have an online harms bill right now which includes trying to tackle things, it tries categorizing the risk, it tries sitting there and saying, oh, like suicide and misinformation and all this other kind of material that's out there and trying to regulate that speech, which again, if it was in the United States, would get struck down by a court as being unconstitutional for trying to infringe upon the free speech rights that Americans hold dear, Um, which include topics that we do find uncomfortable. At the end of the day, but the UK is trying to legislate this. I know, like in part of their report for trying to justify why they want to do this, they cite the fact that children are exposed to uh, rap music online and and uh, you know cursing that might happen there. To our point about our FCC compliance versus non-FCC compliance, um, I think that it's it's very fascinating to see. Um, you know, the UK and other worlds, I think, just do a great job of highlighting just how special the United States is. Uh, we we have a very permissive culture for speech, although that is culturally, at least, getting hit down a little bit with the way that uh, some folks handle speech, particularly with like weaponizing the notion of misinformation and other things. So I think that we can certainly be better about that conversation. Uh, and it'll be interesting to continue to monitor that going forward.
2: Yeah, James Zarnowski, uh, you are always on point with your stuff. You get better every time I talk to you, my friend. I really appreciate your insight on these things. Definitely we will have you back. It's been too long since we've had you on, but you're a busy man. It's hard to get you on the show nowadays. Until um, we get you back on again, though, let folks know where they can follow you on your social media, your writing. You're doing a ton of media stuff, so let them know where they can keep up with you, see all your clips, and your great writing. And some of the, because you've got a lot of regulatory things you're keeping your eye on, let folks know what you're doing with that as well, my friend.
0: Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at JamesCZ19. That's where I usually pontificate and throw a lot of my bad takes out there uh, (laughs) on tech policy and all other musings that's going on, like my haircut that was overdue by five months. But you've got Twitter is probably the best place to follow me. I have my own personal website at jamestramowski.com. Uh, where I try to go and update from time to time with any writing and media hits that I do do. Uh, and also, I always recommend following Young Voices uh, as an organization on Twitter uh, and on their website. They also update whenever I do media hits with great people like yourself and others.
2: Yeah, we're really proud of Young Voices. That's where we um, we had James on back before I was officially part of Young Voices, actually. Uh, they do great work, just celebrated their anniversary. And uh, the haircut looks great. I was giving you a little hard time, but to be honest, I got to go get one today, too, because I got a kid graduating high school this weekend. So I got to go slick up, too. So, uh, my friend, I always appreciate the time. Always enjoy talking to you. Let's do it again soon, buddy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
2: Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, this may come as a shock to you. Some of you may need to sit down, for this, especially those of you out in overflow that couldn't get into the service. Uh, the government might be spying on us again. We're going to go to another one of our Young Voices contributors all the way out in Los Angeles, California. David McGarry, how are you, sir?
4: I'm doing well, sir. Thank you so much for having me on.
2: Uh, thrilled to have you. He's another one of these great... Young Voices contributors that we're so proud to partner with. He's written all over the place, American Spectator, other places that you'll notice. This particular place comes out of the center square, though. And just to kind of set it up for us, David, this is not a new thing, but this is kind of a new take on it. Uh, They're going after, in this particular case, things like Western Union. And the bigger problem here is we're going through a third-party private entity with the government subpoenas and investigation. This on its surface looks like a hot mess. What did it look like when you started looking into it?
4: Well, the further you dig into it, the hotter the mess gets. The government is forcing these uh, credit transfer businesses like Western Union to provide an incredibly uh, wide set of data to a private entity that basically compiles and holds on to this data for law enforcement agencies across the country to access without any kind of warrant or supervision.
2: Now, is that purposeful? Because it seems odd that they would go through a clearinghouse. I understand on their end, while they're doing it, it's nice and easy. Um, but when you get into the numbers here, it looks suspicious to me because I'm not super great at math, David, help me here. They were going in this particular case with uh, Western Union and Max Transfer, which is um, very popular for like migrants, people like that, sending money to Mexico, for example. Uh, but most people would know Western Union, what that is. What they were going after here was they really wanted about eight uh summonses that they were looking at but those eight summonses through customs requests that yielded six million records now that math don't make sense to me is that as egregious as it sounds because that seems like they really kind of took an inch and went running with a mile here
4: well if anything it's more egregious than it sounds because these custom summonses which is the type of subpoena that um homeland security investigations was, was using to uh Gather uh, to gather this data are explicitly limited to apply to certain types of investigations. It is expressly not to be used for bulk data gathering. So they are violating their own rules. And um, although of course, the government insists that all of its actions were above board and nothing was done that was wrong, all that it took to stop these activities was one letter from Senator, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, inquiring after this, And suddenly, all of this activity was shut
2: down. Now, there's sins of omission and commission. Isn't It kind of looks on the the reason this wasn't illegal is just because nobody thought to write a law about it yet. Is that kind of the take you took on it? And then as soon as they they, if they quit that quick, they knew this was probably shady and we're doing anyway. So, yeah, it's probably not in the letter of the law, but that's just because nobody had actually tried it before. Is that kind of the feel you got with this?
4: Well, I'm not sure about that, to be completely honest, because. There's still a lot that we have to find out. Exactly who at HSI headquarters knew about this and when is still a little bit up in the air. Um, we know for a fact that the agents involved with this behavior were not actually going through the uh, going through the prescribed uh, legal and privacy reviews that they are supposed to complete before they open uh, or before they take these kinds of actions. So might it possibly technically technically be in the, within the letter of the law i doubt it small chance but as i said they violated their own regulations to get to this point so it doesn't seem to me as if they're uh, they're uh acting
2: legally yeah david mcgrary co- joining us from young voices all right uh you already mentioned it so let's talk about it uh ron wyden uh senator from oregon He's the one that got involved with this. How did he get involved with it? And what was he actually doing that led up to him looking into this? And getting, I, Was it a constituency thing? Was it an investigation thing? How did that happen?
4: So Wyden has actually been very good on these issues of, uh, of privacy um, of late. He called out uh, uh, Operation Whistlepig, which was a uh, Border Patrol agent. Opening an incredibly extensive investigation into a journalist on very flimsy uh, evidence, he called out CIA data gathering earlier this year, and now he's uh, targeting HSI. I mean, the man just cares about an issue that all 99 of his uh, partners in the Senate should also care about. But let's face it, for whatever reason, um, political or otherwise, they don't seem to. But the man's made it a uh, a priority and part of, his, uh, part of his political package in his resume. And I think he should be commended for that and support for that, even though there's plenty of his other policies and beliefs that I disagree with.
2: Yeah, and Ron Wyden is a Democrat from Oregon, Oregon, of course, being more of a leftward-leaning state, especially the Portland area. Um, is there more bipartisanship on this issue? Because we've been dealing with this since, especially since 9-11. We know about the Patriot stuff. We've been dealing in the last few years with things like FISA warrants and these sorts of things we've talked on our program a lot about the fourth amendment. Uh, you talk about Senator Wyden. and is he alone out there or are there other representatives and senators that you're seeing that maybe get some bipartisan consensus on privacy issues? Because I'm noticing we talk a lot of good game when it comes to big tech and things like that. But then when it's something like this, those same people kind of get quiet. Is that a fair criticism? Or is other people noticing that as well?
4: No, I think, I think that is spot on right there. Um, and I think much of it comes down to the fact that our politics is partisan, not only in, a, not only in the ways that, that, people, that, that people view themselves, but in the issues that they pick to prioritize. So like you said, for the left, um, privacy issues and uh, surveillance of citizens has been a really, really big deal for a while. Um, but right now, because it's not a great blunt object to hit Republicans over the head with, it's not actually, um, or I should say the left isn't making uh, Biden administration abuses a priority to combat, with the exception of Biden. Um, with that said, I'm a little bit surprised, to be honest, that the Republicans aren't jumping on this a little bit more. Under, in the Trump administration, the conservatives and Republicans and people of the right generally got the idea and started to understand that letting law enforcement agents, with all of their biases and personal flaws, uh, letting law enforcement agents go after citizens outside the law probably wasn't the best idea, especially if they if there was no oversight to uh, keep keep them in line. Um, and of course, I'm referring to a lot of the FISA abuse that we saw in um, in relation to the uh, in, in relation to investigations of Trump campaign uh, campaign officials. So why why they can't carry that over and demand that Biden era. Law enforcement agents follow law as well. I don't know. I tend to think that it that they're sort of falling back on old style two thousands Tom Cotton esque support for law enforcement and military and surveillance in general. But I don't know for sure.
2: Yeah, talking to David McGarry about this surveillance program. All right, uh, when we're talking law enforcement on this particular case, the elephant in the room is DHS. We know what an absolute monster of a government organization this has grown into. And I don't mean that in necessarily a bad way. It's just, it's a monster. It's huge. When they built this thing after nine 11, I don't know that folks really realized how much it was going to change things like law enforcement, like oversight. Where's DHS, uh, department of Homeland security on this program, because like you said, this is a multi-state program. You're also dealing with Mexico because you have a lot of people that come in the country and use these wire transfer companies to send money back to Mexico. Uh, That touches on the immigration issue, which is, of course, in the DHS. What's their role here? Because they have direct oversight from Congress, but they're also so big. We've seen this in hearings time after time after time. It's proven to be an organization that's really hard to do effective oversight on. What's their role in this? And where should we start focusing in on because they're so big to get into the heart of the matter on this particular issue?
4: So I think you really hit it on the head, which is that at at a certain point, if or I should say in the absence of clear regulations and clear oversight structures, there will be misbehavior when you give any uh, agency or individual this much power over citizens. And actually that's something that Wyden mentions in his letter that these custom summons have been abused routinely in the past, that we know this, this has been the subject of inspector general reports, yet for one reason or another, probably because there's not enough institutional incentive to, to make the brass care about it, these reforms have not clearly been implemented throughout the agency.
2: We continue our conversation with David McGarry right after this on Harkin. Talking to David McGarry, uh, you you bring up the point that I think is is apropos here is, OK, anytime you're dealing with the legislative branch with Congress, whether it's the senators or the House of uh, Representatives, the only way you really get anybody to do anything is pressure. Um, you talk about it here. Do you see any other way that some of the surveillance stuff is just bringing it to the fore and citizenry having to put pressure on Congress? Because I understand Senator Wyden's taking the lead on this and God bless him for that. That's one out of that's one out of 100. Like you pointed out earlier, there's 99 other ones. Uh, What should the citizenry be doing once they find out about an issue like this to kind of bring that pressure to bear?
0: I think this is
4: the classic call your senators, call your representatives, call uh, call advocacy, advocacy groups. Uh, If you're if you're on the fence in an election and 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 one candidate supports um, supports privacy and the protection of privacy. And the other one doesn't. If they seem to otherwise be similar in, say, a primary than maybe a general election in certain districts, let that be your um, let that be your defining vote in the absence of other uh, of other important uh, important concerns. I mean, obviously, it's a balance. We we can't we can't become one issue voters, but at the same time, as citizens, we can um, we can make our voices heard in you know on the phone, in emails, in surveys, opinion polling means a lot these days when it comes to the way that. Uh, these folks run their campaigns. Um, and then for the rest of us, um, who are, uh, who are maybe involved in some kind of writing or even for, for, for citizens who just like to repost things on social media, let's spread the word about this. Let's talk about it. I mean, the, there's no shortage of, uh, of news on this front. As I mentioned, we have operation whistle where this, uh, rogue border agent was just launching the, uh, launching the full powers of multiple different agencies against a reporter because he thought that she might be involved in something unsavory, didn't go through any kind of oversight protocols, didn't, uh, <clears throat> didn't follow any kind, of, uh, any kind of process really, just decided that he wanted to use the immense power that he had at his disposal to, uh, to dig through her entire life, and he did that. On top of that, you have, like I mentioned before also, the widen expose on the CIA's, what they call, call, uh, data queries where they were gathering quote unquote incidental data on Americans, um, because they could, um, or at least they felt that they could. Um, and then now, um, Cato, uh, is, um, is involved in some lawsuits, some FOIA lawsuits to get the FBI to disclose more information's uh, more more information about these uh, informal, uh, basically, investigations. Of course, they don't call them investigations, but basically, the FBI has been launching investigations into all sorts of political um, political groups that they perceive to possibly be threats. Uh, and they found a workaround that they feel will allow them to get away with it. And until someone somewhere uh, says something, they'll, they're going to keep doing it. And I think that um, I think that people like Wyden are really, uh, are really kicking the ball off and, you know, it's our job to support them and spread the word.
2: Let me ask it this way. Has the word privacy gotten too buzzwordy? Have we got to the place where it's, it's, it's not having the impact it should when we talk privacy issues and maybe we should focus a little more like, You know, this is a law enforcement issue, like, okay, this is data collection and privacy and a law enforcement issue. And separate that from when we're talking about something like big tech, where you're talking about consent agreements and third parties, and it's a little bit different beast. Do you you think the buzzword is getting in the way here a little bit where people just hear privacy and they're like, oh, another privacy thing. Should we be more specific in our language when dealing with diseases? Like, look, this is a law enforcement issue. This affects a lot of people this is a digital copyright issue. This is going to affect you in a different way. Would, would that specificity be helpful here? Cause I, I wonder if we're not just making a lot of white noise about, um, privacy and we're kind of losing folks when we're trying to talk about really important issues here.
4: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with that. Um, like I point out at the end of my piece spying in the uh, 21st century, isn't the sexy cloak and dagger, uh, James Bond driving away in a fast car and, you know, leaving a, uh, leaving an explosion behind you. It's someone sitting at a desk in some basement office, typing in some kind of search query or going through, uh, going through filling out the legalese of a subpoena or what have you. These are, these are little specific actions that, that, like you said, we should be more specific about um, explaining exactly how, uh, how, Certain uh, certain agencies in the government are snooping and spying on on citizens. Um, like a, like I like a like I was saying before, there's so many examples of these of these abuses, and we have a we have an an idea of spying or uh, of government surveillance rather as what I call big brotherism. And if you've read 1984, which I assume you have, and a lot of the people listening have as well. Um, most of big brother surveillance come from these uh, come from a single method of basically putting cameras in as many rooms as possible, but that's not the way that's not the way that surveillance works in the real world in the 21st century. It's much more of death by a thousand cuts. Um, There's so many little ways that the federal government has access to your private life and your private details that essentially, if it wants to for whatever reason that it, that it sees fit, It can indeed intrude on you,
2: David McGarry. Outstanding stuff on this. Uh, We'll have you back on because this issue is never going to go away. It's just going to get worse and worse. I'm afraid. Till we have you back on the show, though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on, and how they can keep track of what's going on in the world of David McGarry.
4: Yeah, please follow me on Twitter at David B McGarry. Um, Also follow my work with Young Voices. You'll find my profile on the website. Um, I'm writing and getting published consistently on privacy issues on, uh, tech and, uh, and, uh, personal security issues. So I would love to, uh, I would love to get my message out as far and wide as possible. And I can't wait to come back on. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Yeah. Anytime that's McGarry with two R's and an A M C G A R R. And I like them other McGarry's that spell it differently. Make sure you get it right. David McGarry, great <laughs> stuff today, my friend. Appreciate your time, sir.
4: Thank you so much, sir.
2: do it for tell this very special edition twice on Sunday. Since this is different, after you've listened to this, do us a favor. Let us know what you think. Do you like it this way? Do you like it the other way? Reach out to us, uh, HerdTelShow at gmail.com, show on the Twitter. And, of course, you can always comment on the YouTube page or on any of the podcasting platforms that you're listening and or watching this on. We always appreciate you. Make sure you're subscribing and sharing. That's very important to us. But let us know. Five great interviews this week. So until we see you again, wherever you and yours are, across the street around the world. We hope you're doing well. We hope you're well-fed. We'll see you right back here for more Hotel next time. Y'all take care. All the music on Hotel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.